Digital Gonzo, episode 57, dated Wednesday the 15th of February 2012. The Harry Potter Movie Reviews, Year 4, The Goblet of Fire. I'd like to make an announcement. Hogwarts Castle will not only be your home this year, but home to some very special guests as well. Please welcome our friends from the north, the proud sons of Darmstrang. And now, the lovely ladies of Bo Battens. I was just wondering if maybe you wanted to go to the ball with me. Mr. Weasley, place your right hand on my waist. Well? Is that Hermione Granger with Victor Crump? You're fraternizing with the enemy. The enemy? Hogwarts has been chosen to host a legendary event, the Triwizard Tournament. And now, the champion selection, Victor Crump, Fleur Deadpool, Cedric Diggory, Harry Potter! How did you do? I didn't put my name in that cup. I don't want eternal glory. It's not our mood, eh? <laughs> Killing curse. Only one person is known to have survived it, and he's sitting in this room. People die in this tournament. The devils are inside the walls. So he's coming closer. I can feel it. The Dark Lord shall rise again. Is it Voldemort? Harry's story takes on a darker turn. Lives are lost and the Dark Lord draws near. As we return for the fourth of eight podcasts to discuss the adaptation of the first Potter book to genuinely grip not only children, but a huge new audience of adults as well. Once again, we're flying six abreast this week. Resuming their post from Game Adult Rerolled, we have our resident literature specialist, Leah Haydu. I'm a literature specialist now. That's pretty cool. You, you just finished reading the book. <laughs> that, that's how it translates. All right. You I'm all right with that. From Gonzo Planet, currently suffering from the Flucciatus curse, Sharon Shaw. <laughs> Hello. Lem Scipiosa. Game Burst's very own Babbity Rabbity returns. It's James Batchelor. Hello. To keep Babbity in check, we have the cackling stump, Mr. Neil Taylor, also something of a book specialist, also of Game Burst and KDS 2.0. Stupefy. And this week's Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher from Kane and Rince is Mr. James Carter. Oh. Before we start, a quick look at the book sales in relation to the films. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you check it out, Philosopher's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, they don't have the numbers on these books. I guess they just weren't counting for the first few years. But uh, in 99, Prisoner of Azkaban um, it is reported to have sold 61 million copies. I think that's just over time since its uh, original uh, publication. Uh, Goblet of Fire sold 66 million. Now, my theory is, and this obviously is, can't be backed up by figures, that people started with Goblet because everyone was making a huge fuss out of it and then went back and bought the first three after the, the fourth one proved to be really fantastic, which accounts for why 5 million didn't get past the fourth book. 
Then there were the first two movies. Do, do you think that they'd sell more or less than Goblet for Phoenix after the first two movies? Guessing it went up. It's actually less. Really? It went from 66 down to 55 million, which means that, what, 11 million people just went, ah, I can't be bothered with this. And that was before they tried to read it. Uh, then the Prisoner of Azkaban movie came out in 2004, and then Half-Blood Prince came out as a book. Do you think it got more or less than Order of the Phoenix? I'd say more, because there was a lot of hype around that one. More there was. Point, yeah. Significant events happened in it. Uh, it actually got 65 million, so it kind of went back up to the median of when Potter was huge, like around the sort of mid-60s. And then there was the Goblet of Fire and Order of Phoenix movies. Half-Blood was July of 2005. Goblet, the movie, was November of 2005. So it was kind of like, it was, a, it was a year where they managed to get both out at the same time, really capitalising on the Potter multimedia event. Uh, and then 2007, Order of the Phoenix came out mere weeks in the movies uh, before Deathly Hallows came out. Here is the really interesting thing. Do you think Hallows sold more or less than Half-Blood? Isn't Hallows meant to be like one of the biggest selling books of all time? I know this one, I know this one, so I, I'm going to be quiet. Smart ass. Uh, anyone else? And not Sharon, because she already knows. More. Leah? More. Neil? It's less. It is less. Really? Now, Neil, do you know, do you know why? Because I can only wildly speculate. I have no idea why this one sold less, because to me it makes no sense. It's the final book. Surely it should sell more. It should sell the most. Because everyone who's been watching the movies is like, I've got to find out how this ends. It sold 44 million. That means that there was a 21 million person drop-off. Or 21 million copies. That could be 21 million families who just couldn't give a monkey's how it ended. That baffles me. That boggles the mind. I would almost guess that it would be because um, people didn't like how dark it had gotten. If it was a family thing, they could have gone through these last couple of books and gone, you know, I'm not really sure that I'm okay with the direction this is taking. And then by the end, they just didn't want to come back to it. But that doesn't explain why the last two movies yes. were the biggest of all of them. Also, Maybe he just got tired of reading. Yeah, also, I'll, I'll wait for the movie. Yeah. Also, the sixth book was hard going to read compared to the others. In the, it's one of the longer books, mm-hmm. but it's a long book for where essentially one thing happens. Book six is an info dump. You learn a lot of information. You're basically right. This is everything you need to know before the grand finale. But in terms of things actually happening, there's the unfortunate incident, and then that's it. That, that's really all that happens that's major and significant and compared to the other books. So maybe that kind of put people off. Now, Goblet is the first of a trilogy of Potter adaptations that, by the nature of the sheer size of the original text and the restrictions of the film, had to be produced with huge amounts of non-essential plot absent. So, what we're going to do this time, rather than having all the differences from the book at the end, we're going to use them as the framework for a comparative discussion that will run through the story from the very beginning to the very end. So... We'll start off at the Dursleys, or rather, we won't... (laughs) 
So right away, though, they, they proceed in the film with what you need to know. And this is director was Mike Newell. He only, like Quaron, only got one go at uh, Potter film. And they made it an action movie, effectively. A, a big fantasy action movie. Only what needed to be said about Harry's story and his progression to the next book, the grand scheme of things, needed to be in there. So it just ended up having to be scissored out. However, looking at the gravestone, 1905 to 1943. Yes, in the book... In the films, they bumped it forwards by 10 years. It should be 1953. Otherwise, Tom Riddle killed his father and grandfather and his father's wife when he was um, five, six. So, Quidditch, because we're going to the Quidditch World Cup here. This is the spot to talk about the game of Quidditch. You were talking in in some of the previous episodes about Jo and and some of her conventions that only evil witches and wizards come from, they only come from Slytherin which Mm -hmm. is clearly a nice thing for school kids to tell one another but the practicalities of of it and the the realities of it are are completely uh, nonsense. Oh, the uh, Defence Against the Dark Arts teachers the practicalities of 30 to 40 years worth of teachers only ever lasting a year Yeah, it sounds very nice to say that there's a curse but the practicalities of it are obviously ridiculous because, as you said about Slytherin, they would just they would put special provisions in for anyone who was sorted into Slytherin, and mm. no one would ever take the Defence Against the Dark Arts job, so they would rebrand it. They would rebadge it. You know, Quidditch is another one. It sounds very nice, but the practicalities of a sport where six people out of seven, eighty what's that, eighty-seven and a half percent of the team are pointlessly flying around the pitch whilst the two people who actually can win the game, for the most part, chase after the golden snitch. It's ridiculous. It's not Often so sport. high up that people can't see them. Yeah, yeah. Why isn't everyone looking for the snitch, even if only the um, if only one person can actually catch it? Worrying about ten points here and there when, for the most part, it never wins you a game is, uh, yeah, it, it doesn't work as a sport. But See, I, I like so the, um, the part in the, the Quidditch World Cup in the book where Ireland wins because they get more points, but um, Bulgaria catch the snitch and thus end yes. the game and get 150 yeah. points. I like that idea. I like that there's this kind of this strategy to the sport where you've got to get as many points as possible before the game ends. And it's it's more than a simple just, oh, you've got to get goals. There's actually a kind of a strategy to it in that it is potentially possible to win without getting that golden ball. I like the idea of that. Yeah. How many points is a snitch worth? 150. But yeah, I see what you mean about the strategy because if you're, um, I can never remember what the goal scorers are called. Chasers. 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 Yeah. The, the, if they if yours are doing really, really well, um, in points, then it's, it's, kind of in your interests to once you've topped 150 get the game ended as quickly as possible if they're doing poorly you want to spin it out so that they have a chance to catch some points up so this is sort of you could have a seeker trying to deflect the other seeker from catching the snitch rather than necessarily going all out to catch it themselves because they don't necessarily want the game to finish you can even have the beaters you know knocking bludgers towards uh, both kind of the the other chaser and the other seeker If if you focus your beaters on the other seeker to keep them away from the snitch while you secure points. Which is what another... is pretty much the Weasleys do. Well, exactly, yeah. yeah. Fred and George, that's their job. Can you remember the last football match you saw where 15 goals were scored by any one team, though? I don't watch football. 
Neither do I. I don't know anything about sports. The comparison as a spectator sport is certainly there. If at some point during a football game a golden ball dropped onto the pitch and the person who scored it got 15 (laughs) goals, it breaks the game. And and that's the problem here. The strategy said, well, it it would. It would be ridiculous. That's the win button. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It would be ridiculous. Oh, but you have to catch the ball first. (laughs) Yeah. But, But the strategy side of things is interesting and it plays in a lot into, you get a lot of narrative during all of the, the matches Harry's involved with as to him having to wait until his team are a certain number of points ahead, or, you know, it's a lot of uh, waiting or distracting, and it feels almost like it's so long-term strategy that it's almost like, um, I know something like cricket or maybe, but the moment-to-moment is so fast that there's a definite incongruity there, I think. Although I I will incorporate at this point Muggle Quidditch, which is awesome, (laughs) where uh, real people in real life have actually emulated the sport of Quidditch using a uh, a chap with a golden hanky dangling from his uh, belt, charging around the pitch as the snitch. (laughs) And everyone's got their appointed uh, roles, and, you know, everyone... It kind of has to clutch a broom between their legs as well, which is a liability, but I love the notion of that. The other version of uh, real-life Quidditch is uh, a variant of water polo, because obviously you've got the uh, sort of pseudo-weightlessness there. Right. So Wait, that... wait, wait. We're back, back into Blitzball territory again. <laughs> Can we not talk about Blitzball? <laughs> Ever. I'm just thinking Blurnsball now from Futurama. <laughs> when do they bring the giant ants out on the pitch? I suspect that there is an element of um, it being there in the first place, this whole emulating the uh, boarding school stories of the, the 30s and 40s. Um, where they uh, Well, lacrosse was Enid Blyton's um, sport of choice, but uh, yes, there are others that have hockey in them as well. Quidditch playing does give you a really interesting metaphor for Harry's character, though, and it, it does kind of add a, a layer of characterisation onto him. Being this, uh, being the seeker, Although he is effectively playing a team sport, he is out there on his own, and that's him in the wider story. He's with his friends and he's with his team, but ultimately, when push comes to shove, it's him up front there dealing with the uh, the ultimate goal of the game. And when they bring Draco in as the seeker for the Slytherins, you then have that metaphor extended to what Draco is being asked to do on the other side. Quidditch matches in each of the books actually play into the storyline fairly well. Um, in the first book, it's Harry discovering Quidditch just as he's discovering the wizarding world. In the second book, it's about his battle with Draco. Uh, and in the third, it plays very heavily into the, the um, Dementors and what's going on at the time in, um, in the school. The, its absence in the fourth book obviously highlights the Triwizard Tournament which is the point of it. But by the fifth and sixth books, uh, Jo herself said she was getting kind of tired of writing Quidditch. Basically what she said was she was glad that by the seventh book she didn't have to write any Quidditch at all. In the fourth book, the Quidditch World Cup brings in the idea that that Quidditch is bigger than just something that they play at school. And of course this is the book in which Voldemort is now going to be impacting on the rest of the world as well. 
And I love the way you see in the film when they show like the Irish team and there's like, you know, proper old men with mustaches. It's like, <laughs> wow, this is a proper adult sport. It's not just a bunch of kids on brooms. It's actually people take this seriously. Well, actually, when I see that, especially in watching it in the movie terms, it makes me think of wrestling because their entrances are like wrestlers' entrances. <laughs> when you think about it, how the Irish turn up with the with the fanfare and the fireworks of the leprechaun, and then the the, the evil uh, is it Bulgarian? Yeah, the Bulgarian yes. Yes. comes flying through and smash it, and you've got that whole car, the moving card thing. It's fantastic, but it made me so think of the theatrics of wrestling. And they even toned it down from the book because in the book you get the whole their mascots on either side, mm. um, who are not only completely outlandish but also get into fights with each other and, during the match. Yeah, yeah. D- during the match, so they they it's it's a pretty big spectacle in in the movie, but uh, in the book it's even even bigger. Yeah. And the Bulgarian Vila, of course, end up you 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 find out a lot more of, about them during the match because they are. Uh, interfering with the referee at one point as well, aren't they? So you, you yeah. get an insight into that. And you is... also find out later that Floor is part of Vila, yeah, so exactly. that you yeah. miss that whole thing too. Yeah. Let's actually use that as a tur- to turn to the uh, differences from, between the book and the film and actually get some bullet points down, because they never even say the word Vila in the film. It's, it's just, it's not a need-to-know thing. No. What's a Vila? Kind of uh, a, a harpy or a succubus, almost. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds pretty negative. I mean, they look gorgeous, but then if they get angry, they turn into these horrible monster things, and they, you know, make men lose all of their mental faculties and just basically what they want. So, yeah, exactly. Trying so hard not to make any jokes right now at anyone's expense. I I, I would suggest not. (laughs) Okay. Um, But, yeah, now, as I mentioned earlier, we get no Dursleys at all. Now, as I recall, didn't the Weasleys come and get Harry out of the fireplace? Yes. Yes. And they blew up the fireplace because he had a gas fire, didn't he? Yeah. Because wasn't that part of the whole boarding up the chimney so no post would come through it? Something like that. I I remember, like, just Arthur Weasley exploding, you know, through the the fireplace and being really apologetic and being really friendly. And, uh, you know, Mr. Dursley, uh, Uncle Vernon being completely dumbstruck and not even knowing what to say because he's just filled with so much rage. And it was a kind of a shame because I think I think Mark Williams and the bloke that plays Vernon would have done that brilliantly. Richard Griffiths played Vernon Dursley. Thank you. And don't the don't Fred and George do the twins something drop too. a ten ton toffee that Dudley uh Yes. Yeah. And that's a whole um I guess this is as good a place to bring it in as any. That's a whole subplot that gets missed is Fred and George uh going through all of their uh, background machinations to open this joke shop because yeah. they've apparently been manufacturing these candies like the one that they give to Dudley and through the whole thing they gamble on the World Cup they get money from Harry at the end because he gives them his Triwizard money um, but that that whole thing is lost as well you see them taking bets at uh, for, at part of the uh, Triwizard Cup I think it's at the last trial yeah. mm. um, but you never so actually that- find out what they do with it why they want yeah. it it's just kind of another thing that they're doing but you that, do get to see Zonko's in uh, uh, film six, but there's no real lead up to it. The topic of um, money in the Wizarding World does seem to be something that gets steered clear of quite a lot. I think we mentioned in um, the earlier podcasts about them never really going into the fact that the Weasleys are quite poor. Um, but neither do they ever really go into the fact that Harry is pretty wealthy in wizarding standards because of what he's been left by his parents. Mm. And, they, and like you say, they don't talk about the money that he gets from the Triwizard Tournament and, and, you know, makes a gift of to Fred and George. 
I think that's because money's kind of a, a kind of a mundane, trivial, everyday thing, and they don't need to focus on it because you, they, they're too busy sharing you sharing all these kind of magical elements of the world. If you're focusing on money, it's kind of a well, yeah, no, it's just money. It's what we pay with. It's kind of it's too close to the real world. Mm. In the book, it it makes it more real and more solid, and, and kind yeah. of brings mm. you into it more. But in the film, you kind of you're already there. You can see it. Yeah. So does it need to be any more solid than that? Speaking of the the bets and the gambling, they cut an entire character out, didn't they? Yeah, I cannot remember Ludo his name. Bagman. Ludo Bagman. Yes, because yes. he's the announcer and he's the commentator at the Quidditch World Cup, and then he comes and commentates the the um the Triwizard tournament yeah. and there's a point where people start to suspect him because he's been a bit shifty and the reason he's been shifty is because he owes everyone money and he hasn't paid up and i completely forgot that and until like, i watched it a couple of times ago like, i completely forgot that character even existed yeah. i don't really miss him i don't think he, he lifts right out as soon as yeah. you oh, absolutely out yeah He's only there to satisfy a bit of Fred and George's situation, and he also is trying to help Harry. But that is all circular because it feeds back into the fact that he owes someone money. Yeah. If he's not there, he doesn't owe anyone money, and he doesn't need to help Harry. So they just changed the focus of who was trying to help Harry that much, mm-hmm. as much as he was. It, just, it would have been interesting to see who they came up with. Who, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with the idea that all the ca- characters they cut out, be interesting to see who they would have cast as them. Stephen Fry would have been good. Yeah, he's quite a character, yes. Ludo Bagman, yeah. The Harry having huge amounts of money is a really, it's a nice way of saying, look, um, money isn't everything. Harry does have uh, enough money at this point to, so that when he's finished at Hogwarts, he's going to be all right in terms of find, you know, getting a place to live. And it's more a case of the fact that his uh, constant quest for friendship, family, and uh, you know, to, to stay out of danger are more uh, his primary concerns. They just they took that aspect away. It's what the irony, you- isn't it, that that um, Ron is is to a certain extent jealous of Harry's money, and mm-hmm. Harry is equally, if not more so, jealous of Ron's family. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's yeah. very much in the book. And they try to illustrate that on the train when he offers to buy sweets off the trolley for mm-hmm. Ron, and Ron's like kind of begrudging. He's like, no, no, fine, no, I'll, no. You know, I'll pay myself. He's determined not to just kind of live off charity. Yeah, yeah, just the dribbles. He's determined not to live off Harry's charity. There's one bit in the entire film, in the entire series, when Harry absolutely should have been charitable, and Ron actually, this one time, would have appreciated it. The dress robes. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) If Harry had just got identical dress robes for Ron, to to his, and just said, look, Ron, they're on your bed. his dress robes, though. Where'd he get them from? It was, um, it was Harry, it was Ron's mum. Really? She sent it Harry. Yeah, that really quite nice outfit. And well, she said, because Ron, she had she had Harry's money to buy it with. Yeah, she didn't send because they were at the World Cup. She went to um, Diagonale and bought Harry some robes and bought could Ron he not some robes. Could not Hogsmeade? Time. They were able to go at this point. Yeah, they could just go to Hogsmeade. Go to they've they've got to be able to buy a suit somewhere and just go look, Ron. I know you. You feel very awkward about this situation, but it's that or Aunt Tessie. Well, let's face it, it's it's the Wizarding World equivalent of the blue tuxedo with the frilly shirt. American Pie and the wedding singer, yes. And Carrie. Yeah, and I think Ron was, was upset enough over this situation that he'd have gone, you know, all right, cheers, mate, and, and actually would have appreciated it. Just, you know, as long as they didn't make a big deal out of it, and obviously it wasn't too long after they'd finished their, their little bit of a bust-up. I think that that would have been showed a bit of solidarity on Harry's part. I don't, That's I don't, actually another thing that happens in the book when he gives the money to Fred and George. He says, "Just buy Ron some new dress robes and tell him they're from nice. you guys." 
Oh, well, there you go. Thank you. That's a nice payoff. Thank you, Leah. That's that's kind of reassuring. Speaking of the Weasleys, no Molly, no Percy, no Bill, no Charlie. Well, yeah, and Percy we completely dropped, which is yeah. a real sad point because it, Percy in the books take that takes a very interesting turn from the Weasley mm. family. He's the one that pulls away and sort of turns. He, he goes estranged. He believes the he lies and stuff till the end, where when his family's in danger, he comes back. Yes. The, the scene with the or the the part that the Weasleys play that is missing that I miss the most in in this um, film is when um, it's Molly and why am I blanking on his name? Harry? They come they come to be Harry's um, re, or sort of Harry's, Harry's family at the, uh, the yes the, the final, final trial. event yeah the final trial. So he spends the day with Bill and and Molly. Um, Arthur. Just walking around Hogwarts. Arthur. No, no, Arthur's not there. It's Bill comes and Molly. Okay. Bill comes oh, along okay. as well because that's when Bill first sees Fleur. I was going to ah. say, how did they meet? Thank you. So then there's a comment to say that they're throwing each other, or she's throwing him covetous looks or something like that uh, when she sees him, because he's already been introduced as someone who looks a bit like a rock star with sort of ponytail and a mm. um, earring and dragon skin shoes and that sort of thing. Yeah. Well cast in the films when he finally does turn up. Um, there's no Roberts family. I don't know who they were. What were they? Roberts family. There you go. Then lay this right out. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> I don't. I don't you remember that. Them completely. Right. Um, there's no Winky. No. There's no goblins there's, at all. There's no, no there's House Elf Revolution. Liberation Front. So House Elf Reservation. Was she a goblin or a, a she was House Elf? Yeah. Okay. So there's no goblins, no House but, Elves. But then once you've already said that Barty Crouch Jr. is not in captivity at the start of the book, he has already gone to Voldemort. Yeah. You don't need Winky there because yeah. the whole point that Barty Crouch was so angry with her was because she let him get away so when he's sitting there in the in the World Cup. The whole point of her being like, wasn't it like she she's on her own at the World Cup and she says she's saving a seat for her master, but actually he's under an invisible like Barty Crouch Junior mm. is under an invisibility cloak yes. chained to Winky, so he cannot escape because yeah. Barty Crouch is trying to let him watch the World Cup and kind of yeah. give him those freedoms, and he abuses it because that's when he nicks Harry's wand yeah. and casts the dark mark with that. All of the stuff that didn't get in there because it's so much more. It makes it so much more complicated than it really needs yeah. to be. Yeah, it was a whole complicated subplot. And this is the thing: Goblet of Fire is my favourite book because it was such a twisting, complex story. Like the other ones, yeah, when you read them back, there's a couple of hints at the, in the early chapters as to what's going to happen at the end. But this one, really, you had to like. There were so many hints and references and everything. Things like um, when they first referred to Mad Eye Moody. His house was raided and dustbins went, oh, you know, his, his dustbin alarms went off. And you're meant to think it's, oh, it was a false alarm. You know, Arthur Weasley got down there and checked and it was all right. But yeah. no, that's when... That's when it happened. Well, that's when Barty Crouch captured yeah. um, Mad-Eye Moody and transformed into him. There was so much going on in the book. And yeah. you would never have got that into Goblet of Fire. Yeah. It's just stuff that ha- happens behind the scenes. And ultimately, the book is a really great way of... Uh, uh, not- of, of shedding light on all of these mm. events as well, because most of the stuff that happens in the film doesn't actually contradict what happens. Uh, in no, the, it just of some of the which there, there's another conceit there that um, that Joel puts in that you kind of just have to swallow, which is that one of Dumbledore's best friends is kidnapped and held captive by a comparative stranger to Dumbledore, who mm. and he manages to hoodwink Dumbledore into thinking that he is his best friend for a whole year without yeah. giving the game away. I mean, Dumbledore gets suspicious, but 
in the book they sort of say he kept Mad Eye Moody in this trunk in order to get information from him that he might need to to sort of keep his disguise yes. going. So like he uh, and Dumbledore never sat down to a cup of tea and a sherbet lemon and just and had a long talk. remember talk when with. or oh that was those were the days. Yeah, any discussion they would have had based on any history of this character yeah. would surely have revealed what was going on to Dumbledore. But yeah. you just kind of have to swallow that. Um, there, of all of the films where you're asked to believe a lot of things didn't happen or, or a lot of things uh, you know wouldn't happen uh, this one is probably the highest in all seriousness but mainly because it's, it's predicated upon the, the conceit that they will put these children in danger and they will put Harry in danger for the glory of the Triwizard Cup uh, I'll talk about that in just a second, but one more thing that was missing from the, uh, one more person that was missing from the uh, Quidditch World Cup, uh, I won't even ask you guys to guess. It's a character that I really wish we'd seen more of in the films, um, but I don't think we'd have shed, shed any more light on what kind of person she was, because she was very secretive and very cold. Narcissa. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Narcissa Malfoy. Oh, did she turn up in the fourth one? I forgot that. She's, well, they're three all... of them were in the top box in the fourth one, which yeah. they yes. weren't because they changed that. The point was that um, Arthur had got these great tickets in the box next to the minister, next to uh, Winky, obviously, and also next to the Malfoys. But the Malfoys head off to their box seats. Meanwhile, in the film, um, the Weasleys and Harry and uh, Hermione all go up to the sort of stands, if you like. But um, I did quite like the... You know, I, I, as much as that is a change, I quite like the fact that Malfoy is boasting and Lucius is being his usual kind of arrogant, nothing can touch me kind of way. And it's like, it's when you see Lucius at your best. Like I, I, I was watching it with my sister actually, and my sister loves the character of Lucius Malfoy, and how and she, she every time she sees him, particularly in this scene when you see him, like you know, enjoy yourself while you can. She says like, <laughs> it's such a shame that he gets completely broken in the next two, three films. Like, the next film is the one where he just lets down the Dark Lord. And then when you see him as this pathetic man in the Deathly Hallows films, and it's such a shame, but when you watch it back, like, this this hit thing here, he is genuinely a threat, and a kind of a... but, but an, untam- an, an untouchable threat. And I love seeing him like this. Yeah. It's not a shame at all, because that's what, that's what he's reaped. That's I, what... He is sowing the seeds of his own destruction. He is basically putting his child... In the Dark Lord's hand and saying, there you go, use Draco, that's fine. Will it get me more favour? He is a despicable man, and Jason (laughs) Isaacs himself wants him to suffer. I agree, I agree, but my sister likes that character, so she she finds it a shame when you see him go from this really cool villain to just Mm. this kind of pathetic weed. But that gives Jason Isaacs so much more to do in film seven. He's just like, my lord, my lord, dragon heartstring. And he's, he's broken. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. He would be very one-dimensional if he was just slimy and powerful the whole way through. If it rains, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> he's like ten times posher than the poshest man in the world. It's her, Pam. Said a posh person to me today. And on that note, I have to say it. Hello yeah. to Jason Isaacs. Hello to Jason Isaacs. I was holding <laughs> it back until uh, for film seven, but let's say it right now. Hello to Jason Isaacs. We know you're listening, Jason. Awesome job.
makes me laugh was it when they then they announced the champions and you know Victor Crumb and all the Dermstrang boys like clap and laugh and cheer him on it's like of course it's going to be him why are you clapping I don't think they ever actually say that maybe I mean maybe I missed it but I, I just it didn't really occur to me until I was watching it and you know everybody else comes in and it's like they're his welcoming party or something it's like they're all there for him well, which would make sense to who he is they're his entourage very much yeah he is kind of like the Wayne Rooney of the Bulgarians <laughs> <laughs> While well, we're on that briefly, and I don't <laughs> it's okay, Leo. You're not missing out. Okay. While well, we're on that, he's a Cro-Magnon British footballer, <laughs> also known as a monkey in a suit. He's, he's, he's. I, I was I'm, just going to call him Cro-Magnon because he wouldn't understand that, and he wouldn't beat me up. <laughs> I think he must be related to Shaved Ape Henchman Number Three from uh, He is. <laughs> Apparently there is a girl in Durmstrang, but I'm imagining that one woman in dodgeball. Verovichka. Let's get to the bit where the book and the film diverge fairly wildly in terms of emotional impact. Uh, when Harry's name comes out of the goblet, in the book... Uh, Leah and Neil, if you got that far, and anyone else, if you can remember, how did Dumbledore react? It's not too different than it is in the film. It's just more pronounced in the film. He he doesn't he doesn't really react much at all. It's a, a bit like he's stunned. Now in the film, he almost comes off as angry, and I I actually kind of liked the way that the film did it better. It just it seemed more appropriate, um, and not that Dumbledore was angry at him, but that Dumbledore was angry that this had happened when he's yeah. supposed to be protecting Harry. Yeah, yeah it's, it seems in the movie that he's almost he's on the edge of losing control when he comes mm-hmm. in. Yeah, uh, for me, this is the first bit where Dumbledore actually acts in four films. Uh, I mean, for the first two, Richard Harris just came on, said his lines, and left. And uh, the, the third one, as, as you said uh, last week, he doesn't really do much. Um, but this one, he finally reacts. And he reacts in a way that wasn't written in the book, and he reacts in a way that's honest and true to Dumbledore when you know the bigger picture. Because this is something that he's not orchestrating, and this is something that slipped out of his control, and he is very, very worried it's, about it. It's interesting that you put it like that, because... Um, if you were at the time as I was listening to Harry Potter podcasts and, and reading Harry Potter blogs and that sort of thing, that was an example of how people thought um, Dumbledore had changed for the worse with the change in actor. A lot of people felt that Richard Harris was a sort of passive, uh, all-knowing, all-seeing uh, guide to Harry through the school. And mm. this this anger was something that just wasn't there for them, which was sort of when you were talking about uh, Richard Harris I really felt uh, that in the first two books that kind of was what how Dumbledore was and mm. um, benevolent yeah. and ne- his pulse never going above but sand through the course of the seven books he becomes the Dumbledore that we see from film three onwards mm. that change just happens with the change in actor rather than through the books, gradually you start to see more of Dumbledore and how he's protecting Harry and taking a more direct role in in Harry's future. Um, mm. So I think it's unfortunate that the change in actor happened, but that was the progression that Dumbledore had to go through. It just felt a little bit harsher because it was just over the course of you know between two films. 
Um, it was surprising at the time because you'd be yeah. like, whoa, this has really got to him. Yeah. But now I love it. I yeah. love the fact that Dumbledore's showing his humanity because when it comes down to it, he is more and less than just this godlike, all-knowing, manipulative wizard. He was a man back when he was young, and he still is. And that makes him much more to me, much, much more, because with all of his history, all of his frailties, all of the mistakes he knows he's made, he still Mm. seeks to do what he knows is right, and he knows his own limits, and that makes him much, much more of a character to me than the the initial character that seemed, you know, the character on the back of the Chocolate Frog card. You start to get the guilt that he uh, he is um, the guilt over his he, he manifests a lot more yeah. uh, later in the uh, books that um, you've kept him alive so that he can die at the proper time. This sense that that Dumbledore is actually nudging Harry into the right place every single year to make sure that he does the right thing, but not really talking to him about it, not explaining to him what danger he's in and why. Mm. There's a bit at the beginning of um, the Phoenix book. I think it's even on the, maybe on the back cover where it says, I'm going to do something I should have done a long time ago, Harry. I'm going to tell you everything. And that when I read that, I was like, oh my God, I've got to read this book. Because he does sit down with Harry and tell him a lot of stuff, but it's at the very, very end. But here, here you get to see that, that, that Dumbledore is actually be- beginning to become really uncomfortable with what he's doing to Harry. And Snape, now that we know what Alan Rickman knew, it's a really interesting reaction to have him go, Maybe we should just let Potter compete, you know, draw out this saboteur. It's, it's almost inconceivable. Again, it's, we're being asked to believe that these two men who only want to keep Harry alive would go, yes, let us keep doing this. Draw the snake out of its hole and then strike. They don't seem to have a plan to strike. Since you, Leo, since you told me about the whole Alan Rickman thing, I watched that bit, and I watched Snape very carefully in this one. And in that bit, he seems, as much as he's saying that because it is in the script, he seems almost a little bit reluctant. And I don't know if that's what I was looking for, but it, it, to me it looks like he's a little bit reluctant to say that, but he just he can't really see any other choice. Maybe He's kind of re- hesitating in what he's saying, not just in the you know dramatic way that... Um, Alan Rickman says things by, you know, pausing for half a century between each, cent- each, be- each couple of words. But he's like, maybe for the time being, we let this play out. Because there's nothing else we can think of. So maybe we let this play out. I think he's taking his cue from Dumbledore at that point as well, because that, that does kind of um, emphasise this thing that effectively Snape has put his own... Um, outcome and his own uh, position in Dumbledore's hands and he has to trust him because otherwise he's throwing away a lot. I was also brought to mind when you're talking about this that Snape is very much an agent who works in cloak and dagger. He's he's done that for whew, 20, 30 years by that point, more probably in, in the in the film version and he probably understands that the unknown danger is far greater than the known danger. Mm, when yeah. Harry is in Hogwarts with Dumbledore there, they can control a certain amount of what's going on. And they need to understand what is going on. So leaving that danger unknown by not letting Harry compete is far, far more dangerous um, because it will come back at some time when maybe they aren't in control of the situation as they are now. Watch Snape and... Uh, Dumbledore at the, the exact frame that uh, Harry's name comes out of the goblet before anyone even sees it it's like they've gotten all the three names are out and it's like okay right we're done thank god and then suddenly one comes out again and both of them have a look on their face that's no yeah 
not now, not Harry, no, no. They're unified at that moment, and you don't know that until you go back and watch it. Harry Potter. Harry Potter! No. No. Harry Potter! We could talk about the, the ludicrousness of the fact that they actually set up a rule that said no kids below the age of, what, 17? 17. Was it 16? 17, yeah. 17, yeah. 17. So no one but the, the seniors can actually take part. And then Harry's name coming out, and they're not just going... Well, you can't or more to the point, yeah. Harry. We, we said no 17-year-olds. They, they go to Barty Crouch for a ruling on what it says, and they say, oh, no, he has to compete. Does he? Can, can Harry not just say, no, I'm not turning up. Sorry, I'm not doing it. You know well, uh, well, they, what they, magical spell binds him to compete? They otherwise? actually do excuse it by that. They say that it's a binding magical contract, and they never really explain what that means, but... Uh, there's th- that's always really bothered me. It's there's got to be some way around that because if it's a contract, he broke one end of the contract by a not being 17, b not mm. putting his own name in the cup, and c uh, I don't have a c, but um, <laughs> it's been tampered with. It's tamper evidence. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there, the contract has already been broken, so yeah. by my mind, he should have no reason to abide by the other end. I think the 17-year-old thing is the key there because you can't enter into a legal contract until you're 18. So on the magical thing, if they're saying nobody under 17 can enter, if you're under 17, it's irrelevant whether it's a contract, you can't sign it. I get the feeling. Well, it doesn't matter. He didn't sign it. It wasn't. I mean, surely there is some kind of spell that they can cast to see that no, he really did not put his name in the goblet. I think that the uh, it's a binding magical contract. I think that line is specifically from the film. I don't remember it being in the book. It's but I've always oh, it is in the book. I've always yeah. taken that to mean it's kind of a a tamed down version of the unbreakable vow. Mm. Not if, that you will die if you break it. How can you tame down the that you we will die? Well, you will die if you break it. You'll probably die if you don't. <laughs> no, I don't, I, I don't know what the consequence would be. That death or death, <laughs> cake or death. Well, I'll have the chicken. Um, no, I still, don't know what the consequence would be, but there would be a dire consequence. But I'm still left with the question: What happens if, if Harry pitches up for the first one and just stays in the tent, or he walks out and refuses to lift his wand? Now, if I'm does allowed, that count as not competing? So I or? give up. Dragon wins. If if you allow me to do a little segue into another book series that involves a wizard called Harry. Go. And this is my understanding of a magical contract from that universe, which basically in the Dresden Files, uh, a binding... uh, If a wizard swears on his magic, which is a binding magical contract, if he breaks that oath, he loses his magic. So maybe that's why ah. they let Harry go in. Now, like I said, that is a completely different book series, completely different author, completely different universe, but that's how they explain a magic, sort of a magical but, contract in that world. And the if they used is, that, I would, have, I would have bought that. Well, personally. the difficulty is that doesn't exist in the Harry Potter universe. There, I, I don't think the seven, yeah, there's no mention of a wizard or witch losing their power like hmm. that. Also, uh, Dumbledore, someone would have sat down with Harry and said, you know, you can refuse this, Harry. It means you'll no longer be magical. And Harry would have to make that decision himself. Ah, apparently. Hang on. Um, 
You're doing, have you done some no, research? No, no, no. Joe was doing an interview. It's just an aside, really. Joe did an interview where she said that this was one of the things that a lot of people speculated the outcome was going to be, that Harry would go up against Voldemort and win, but in the process of doing so would lose all of his magical powers and would end up going back out into the world just a muggle. Which she then clarified, he, he didn't lose his magical powers, but... He did. Lo- she said that he lost his ability to talk to snakes. Probably, uh, this, yeah. this, but yeah. the, 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 the magic that, that he born. had, yeah, the magic that he had on behalf of having part of Voldemort's soul in him. Spoilers. Mm. Um, he lost that when Voldemort. Don't say him. spoilers on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We've spoiled everything okay. already. But this one goes much further into the series, so. But she she suggested that he would lose his ability to speak parcel tongue. Um, I'm not sure whether she actually said the scar as well might go. But I think she, the scar did go, so didn't it? If he, yeah. If he stopped being magical, would that also remove the Horcrux effect? Yeah. Uh, no, so. no, because you can put a Horcrux into any object or any living creature. It doesn't need to be a magical one. Oh yeah, that's true. All right. So you could put it into a model. yeah, in theory. Although although okay. Voldemort never would, but yeah. You and could. I think well, he still is, has the scar for the record. This is all pure blind speculation. There's various reasons. The main one being, we just need to get on with the plot of the story. So let's just say that Harry is doing this Triwizard Tournament. Okay, everyone. The other thing they say in the film is that um, they say Dumbledore specifically asks Harry if he asked an older student to put his name into the cup. That's a bit of a loophole, isn't it? If you can just get an older student to put your name in the cup, well, why aren't there hundreds of names of underage? Draco could simply have asked yeah, yeah, a, a, a year yeah. seven Slytherin put, put Potter's name in That the seems cup. like a massive loophole because we're dealing with teenagers. All you need to do is have some ability to get an older student to put your name in and, and Bob's your You uncle. need some sort of special magic to talk to a 17-year-old, don't you? In the book, wasn't there some sort of um, the, the entry slip that he'd been that, that his name was written on? Someone had um, enchanted it so that it, it, it came up with a completely different school which is why uh, fourth that was the champion suspicion. came out never, yeah, yeah and then and then presumably like you know that faked his age and so forth so i think it was all it's ridiculously tampered with call it off david a redraw yeah, for God's yeah sake. but if they this time no everyone just watched the cut. yeah but if they did that let's face it we'd have no story yeah. again yeah this is all Harry in Potter place to make sure that <laughs> now here's the thing <laughs> This is all set up. We're jumping ahead here with this one. This is all set up to get Harry to touch a port key. Yep. Isn't it? Yep. I mean, there's no real yeah. reason why Harry has to fight yeah. a dragon, yeah. get rid of some mermaids, get through the hedge. Surely, just like Moody slash yeah. Crouch could just leave a broom with a port key enchantment on it at the end of Harry's bed, and Harry wakes up and goes, oh, a new broom. <laughs> or, or couldn't he just kidnap Harry? Even in Hogwarts, yeah, there's so many other even, easy they, ways he could have done it. Done it in fact, the um, they could have done it with the egg, the egg that he picks up from the um, from the dragon. In they fact, could, if just he take act- him back to his office and, and say Potter, catch and chuck him a porky. If he actually gets killed sometime within all of this dangerous stuff that he's doing, then he's yeah. useless. Yeah. He's he's already gone, and Voldemort doesn't have him anymore. And, and plus, Cedric almost won, so the whole like messing everything up was for, would have been for nothing. Still dead, Cedric. And the way this is explained in the books is that um, Mad Eye Moody or or Bart Grouch Jr. has more of a hand in proceedings than you know or you see, and he is actually ensuring Harry wins, and he is ensuring Harry stays alive. That's tough to swallow in the film because when you're being chased by a dragon on a broomstick, 
don't see what Moody no, did there, exactly. apart from give to Harry the tip. You, yeah. You're allowed a warrant. So that's, that's kind of the, the thing there. And I suppose the reason Harry was allowed or supposed to continue was if we're buying that Snape and Dumbledore want to play this out because they need mm. to know what's going on, even at the, the uh, risk to Harry's life, then they are sort of massaging things to say, okay, well, Harry's going to continue. We're not going to allow any reasons for him not to to be heard. Harry, you put your name in the cupboard of the fire. No, sir. You asked one of the older students to do it for you? No, sir. You're absolutely sure? Yes, yes sir. And of course he is lying. The hell he is. The cupboard of the fire is an exceptionally powerful magical object. Only an exceptionally powerful confundus charm could have hoodwinked it. Magic way beyond the talents of a fourth year. You seem to have given this a fair bit of thought, Mad-Eye. It was once my job to think as dark wizards do, Karkaroff. Perhaps you remember. That doesn't help, Alistair. Read this to you, body. The rules are absolute. The Goblet of Fire constitutes a binding magical contract. Mr. Potter has no choice. He is, as of tonight, a Triwizard's champion. That doesn't mean that Dumbledore doesn't dreadfully regret it later, when Cedric is dead and a student's blood is on his hands no, because he allowed this yeah. thing to proceed, which is obviously a trap to get and Potter. I, I seem to remember the explanation for why Moody couldn't just take Harry from moment one where he saw him, was that... Mm. Um, well, he can't apparate out with Harry because no one can apparate in and out of Hogwarts, Dumbledore aside. Um, he, he actually can't create a port key either. The only reason he's allowed to create the port key at the end of the book is because Dumbledore has said it's okay to do so. Because port keys are quite strictly regulated and the inference is that in Hogwarts, Dumbledore would know about it if you made a port key. Okay, so he's allowed to make a port key, but um, when it comes to what's the destination, Anywhere you like. it's just sort of written down there in pencil, and he scrubs it out and puts, it's a graveyard <laughs> in little... Yeah, like I said, huge stack upon stack of narrative contrivances yeah. we're expected to just go, yeah, all right, yeah, all right. It's beside the point. Once you're actually on the ride, it's great, yeah. and I don't actually have a problem with it, especially the way it plays out, but... Jeez, I mean, well, in I terms of MacGuffins, the they it's do a huge They have a yeah. lot of plot contrivances in them. Okay. And the thing to remember um, is that go... they are ultimately children's books, and I think you can kind of get away with plot contrivances slightly in, in kids' books, because it, it's, like I say, it's, it's to get the plot going, to get the kids wrapped up in a, in a plot and, and want them to continue the story, and you can get away with that more in children's fictions, which this still is, than you would if, if this was a, an adult fantasy, you know, then yeah, you're right, it would have been hugely contrived and it wouldn't have got away with it. What I would say in this case <laughs> There's is. There's so many contrivances in Lord of the Rings, and I will get to the Eagles when we actually do that show. <laughs> what, what I would yeah. say quickly in this case is I think it sounds like we all agree Dan Brown's a pretty iffy writer, and that's putting it mildly. Iffy? Yeah, yeah iffy, exactly. He's I, dying. I'm being iffy kind. Yeah. Some note of unsurety. Awful, yeah, I would say. I would okay. actually argue that in, in schemes of writers, Joe Rowling perhaps isn't as good as her success suggests. The reason I say that is because I think we can all agree that the story that's told in this book in particular drags you through the plot contrivances. And the fact that this book was the one where adults started reading it in their droves is telling that they were happy to put up with these contrivances because the story was good enough. She is a great, great storyteller, is my belief. But compared to 
someone like Philip Pullman, perhaps, she is not as good at her ability to craft a narrative, maybe. I think the thing with Joe, though, is that, and I would say to a degree this of uh, Tolkien as well, uh, the world she creates mm-hmm. and the characters she creates are what you fall in love with. Yes. The stories and the plots, sometimes you might think, eh, that's a bit, mm, maybe, maybe not. But you you love the people that she's created so much that you are willing to let it slide because you want to see where these people are going to go. And particularly as the, as the story goes towards its conclusion, mostly what people do and how they respond, it's all completely genuine and completely true to those characters and you believe how they respond even if you don't quite believe what it is they're responding to absolutely yeah let let me be clear this isn't a it it sounds like a much harsher criticism of of her in these books than it than it is all all i'm merely suggesting is that especially books four and five five there are a lot of contrivances a big ones that you just have to swallow and go along with it for the ride oh yeah Um, to a degree, I think I, I agree with you completely, but I think that's where the success comes from. It's the yeah. world she's crafted and the people she's Absolutely. created yeah. rather than yeah. specifically the stories that she that are their vehicles. Yeah, yeah, very much, yeah. Okay, Rita Skeeter, the wonderful Miranda Richardson. Horrible and slimy, Joe Rowling clearly has an axe to grind about hack journalists and getting the ages wrong over and over again and not listening and putting everything that's said to them through a filter of this is actually what I want to write because this will sound good and not caring about the facts. It's everything that Rupert Murdoch has been facing in the past year. That, I think, is something to do. I'm sure there was at some stage there were reporters going after her kids. Yep, to try were. and find things out about they were going to his schools and calling up pretending to be from the school to speak to her about her kids stuff really awful stuff awful awful stuff yeah loads it, 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 is. it is just the epitome of the loathsome journalist and Miranda Richardson does a very good job of that fantastic yeah it's it's good that she's actually in the film because there was my worry was that it's the sort of character like Ludo Bagman that you could have cut out completely. They obviously they trimmed down her storyline completely in that you know the reason she got so many scoops and so forth was she was she was an illegal animagus and she could turn into a beetle, um, mm. and they cut all of that out. But the fact they actually included it, I was quite happy with because again she's such a constant presence through the book. And such a constant, not threat as such, just kind of something that bothers the kids and bothers, you know, Harry, Hermione, etc. While they're trying to do... She's an ambulance yes. chaser. I think she does provide some humour, though, in a, in a film that could very easily have got bogged down in the darkness. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, and she was absolutely brilliant. And, and again, great casting. Okay, a few more things that were absent from the finished film. Uh, Colin and Dennis Creevy are amalgamated into Nigel Walpert a character created for the films, and I don't quite know why. We don't need to talk about it, but just, you know the well, kids. Yeah, I, I actually thought it was one of the creepies. It was the younger one, because there's two. Well, they start out as two. Yeah, but no. Name's Nigel Walpert. <laughs> they only refer to him as Nigel in the films, aside from, I assume, Alex, you got that from the credits, but um, he is called Nigel. There is no Nigel in the books. He yeah. created entirely for the films. Weird. But yeah, he is he is a creepy esque character. Um, he's a probably just a bit easier than having two kids and trying to introduce them as distinct characters. 
just to have one kid who's doing the same well, thing. Well, just have Colin do the same yeah, stuff really, as, yeah. as uh, Dennis. Is it crucial? I mean, Nigel never really did anything. And it was all well, considering the ultimate fate of Sorry, one Nigel. of them. Yeah. yeah. I suppose Colin skipped and hopped away from that one in, this, in the cinematic universe. Right, uh, Padma Patel is a Ravenclaw. Yeah. Um, they appear to be hanging out in Gryffindor's common room quite a lot. So it's, it's feasible that she is a Ravenclaw. I don't know. No, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty sure you see her in Ravenclaw or in uh, Gryffindor They're both colors. yeah. Yeah, and, and in Not the Gryffindor common rooms, and in the books they are identical because the point is made that brothers and sisters don't always end up in the same house. Look at the Patil twins; they are identical, and yet they ended yeah. up in different houses. But you do have Sirius yeah, and uh, Regulus who don't end up in the same. Yeah, no, Slytherin and uh, Gryffindor. Regulus. I'm actually going to write a story about Regulus. It's going to be on Gonzo Fiction sometime soon. Right, uh, no mention of Hagrid being half giant, or someone said in the uh, forums half troll. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nor yeah. was there anything about Madame Maxine. They just looked no, they, it's a big woman. Yeah. Oh, that's a big woman. No blast ended scroops. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, was, I was always intrigued to see what they would look like. And that then um, plays out in the final um, the final challenge of the Triwizard where they remove maze. all of the, the different magical beasts and enchantments from the maze, which I like actually. Uh, no professors Trelawney or Sprout, both of whom were in previous films. No Professor Grubbly Plank ever. No, yeah, you're right. Yeah, not necessary, I don't think. Hagrid's absence does serves for Grubbly Plank's presence in the films, yeah. I think. The Dragon Trial is greatly expanded in scale. Now, before we get to that, actually, I'm just going to talk about the three curses, that, that particular section of it. That's one of the most powerful moments of the mm. movie for me. Um, when fake Moody is performing these three curses on this one unfortunate spider and singles out Neville yeah. to show him the Cruciatus curse, he's not even, Neville's not even doing anything. He's just watching this thing while it is being tortured, to, you know, purely manipulatively. He knows because he's one of the ones who actually tortured Neville's parents just to see his reaction, just so he could later on bring him, give him a cup of tea and befriend him. Uh, it's so sadistic. It's so yeah. manipulative. And I feel such pain for poor Neville. Oh, come on. Long bottom, is it? There's the, um, the Cruciatus curse. Correct! Correct! Come, come. The torture curse. Stop it! Can't you see it's bothering him? Stop it! Um, and it's, it's a shame because, like, like you said, like that's really powerful. But that's really powerful for us, for us because we've read the book. We know that Neville's parents were tortured into madness because we know. Not only do we know that that's what happened, we also know how they are now. We know that they're in St. Mungo's and they don't even recognise their son. So when you see um, Neville's face contorting as he watches the spider being tortured, we're the ones feeling the pain. The, the, the regular readers and the fans of the series are the ones who feel the pain the most because we understand the full implications of that scene. And that's, yeah. that's kind of a shame, but th- it's it, kind of a shame for the people that, that haven't read the books and that they miss out. But even so, it's, but, it's great that they kept that in. But mm. the turnaround for the final movie is quite good, where he has his moment, his mm. pretty badass moment. It's quite <laughs> cool. Yes. Yeah. 
Joe Rowling has described him as a rock god now, since from going from a fairly tubby kid in the first yes. one to just being this really kind of <laughs> impressive young man. So, uh, yeah, he, he certainly grows into himself. Something I mentioned in a previous podcast but had to get cut out for timing reasons, when Harry says, there was someone here earlier, a man. Arthur comes up to him and says, a man, Harry, who? And he's talking about David Tennant. Ah. Sharon and I said that this was a waste of David Tennant last week. I think the main reason is he is capable of... So much more. Extremely sensitive acting and extremely subtle acting. Just what's human and, nature and family. And the, the twitch that they put in or, or the, the uh, tick that the they put in to, to get that message across to the audience uh, does him a disservice, I think. Yeah, I mean, even, even if they just had the twitch but had him do his... His thing. I mean, he's not even the same as Barty Crouch as written. Right. Barty Crouch, uh, you know, tries to avoid going to Azkaban. Uh, he, you know, he, he's, he's surreptitious. He tries to hide. But in this, he's full on, la, 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 hello, father. And he's, you know, are you proud of me or your insane son? And he's like ten times worse mm. than any overacting in the rest of the series. The only person who overacts as much as him is Bellatrix. Um, yes. Yeah, but and, and that's, that it, that's on purpose. And also she shows, she goes back and forth between uh, being, you know, you filthy half-blood to being coward and to snake. And that's supposed to be because she's been in Azkaban for those years. I mean, she was already unhinged beforehand, but Azkaban was the final straw. The difficulty with Barty Crouch is that he's like that in the courtroom scene, which is before he's ever been to Azkaban. Um, he just seems yeah. totally unhinged. And, and also, like, if he's that mental, how could he be surreptitious enough to escape, get, escape Dumbledore for a year? That doesn't make sense. I think sense. it's one of the strange marks of the Harry Potter films that, yes, you've got your big-name actors in certain roles, but in other roles you have actors that aren't such a big names. And I'm thinking more of Arthur for this one. And I've mm. complete. Is it Paul? Mark, Mark Williams. Williams in that role, who you wouldn't think is... As good an actor as he is in these movies, you know, or, for example, um, I'm going to say Trigger because I forgot the name of the character now. Robert Lloyd Pack. Mm. Yeah, he's fantastic in this film as well. And these are actors that are more known for the television work uh, and maybe not as might not be in the same class as, you know, an Alan Rickman or Michael Gambon. Yet they C- certainly not internationally. Yeah. But yet and theatre based. Actors. Yet they do an incredible job. It's, it's just a shame to see David Tennant. I mean, if they'd known what David Tennant was going to go on to be able to do, it, they'd work with him a little bit more and say, OK, Crouch is a villain, but we want the kids to be scared of him, and we can do that in other ways than just gnashing of teeth. Can, can I ask very quickly, just to return back to where we started this, which was the the unforgivable curses scene. Yeah. What is the first curse that's put on the uh, the spider and what's the effects of it? Because I'd be interested Imperio. to know. Yeah. The Imperio is mind control. Yeah. Mm. Basically, it does yeah. whatever um, Moody's ordering it to do. Yeah, but it seems to float through the air on the end of the wand. He's more levitating it. It's got um, a thread. It's um, He's commanding it to walk. It's cast mm. a web or something, and he's commanding her to walk along the web towards the window. And mm. um, Because I, I don't think the effects of that spell are particularly well shown in the... Um, in, a spider, in the film, yeah. it looks an awful lot like he's just cast Wingardium Leviosa and he's dangling it over people's heads and dropping it on people. Once you've cast Imperial, it stays on and you have influence over that person. Because um, when when you hear of it being used in the books or read of it being used, and also when you see it in, in film seven, it's much more about 
and, and particularly when Moody's using it on the kids, he gives them an instruction. He doesn't need to point his wand at them. He doesn't need to have the sort of direct control he has over the spider in that scene. I think they probably do it just as a really obvious illustration that he is in control. But that's not how the curse works. What are you laughing at? What did I ever do next? Jump out the window? Drown herself? And it suddenly the mood just drops out and it goes icy cold. And you realise, once you've seen it the first time, or if you know that he's Buddy Crouch Jr., he's made people drown themselves. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And he is... He's just... He's... he's playing with the kids and saying, look, this is actually the reality of it. It's almost like he genuinely is trying to teach them about what they're up against. But then that's almost in a... You get the sense that that's almost in a, a kind of evil villain. It's more sport if they know what they're facing and they will actually try and fight me. Yeah, well, which yeah. actually plays into sort of the ending as well, when Voldemort goes, pick up your wand. And then, you know, come out and face me. I don't want to sh- shoot you in the... Well, we could yeah. shoot you in the back. Anyone else notice that for some reason, everyone, everyone has the longest hair in this yes, series, this episode, than any Cones of the rest? have been banned. Hairdressers have gone out of business. Hair gel clearly hasn't taken off. It's it's year of the scruffy hair. It's I, brilliant. At several stages, wigs are in I do yes. think that is a nod to Hermione's glamouring, though, because it's not said explicitly that, that that's what's going on. Only the Sith deal in absolutes, I thought, George. <laughs> anyway, that was something else uh, she said in this interview, actually, where she was talking about people speculating about the ending. People had said to her, is Voldemort oh, going to oh, turn out to be Harry's father? And she went, oh, no, that's oh, the Star yeah, Wars ending. No. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we were unfortunately uh, denied the line, you can't be my father, you represent everything I hate. <laughs> 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 Which would have been so awesome. The Dragon Trial. Let's get to the oh. trials quick. We've got no time here. Um, now, James, you said that last week they, that you disapproved a little bit of the Buckbeak becoming a huge and epic scene. Now, I didn't realise that I hadn't said it, but there's a good reason why they made Buckbeak's uh, flight so epic. It's so that Buckbeak himself was seen as a more precious animal and someone that something slash someone, a, a being that should be preserved, not just some angry, surly, pecking bird thing, which you're like, I don't know, but Buckbeak's going to die, boo-hoo. You need, to, you need to remember why Buckbeak is special. Okay, I will, I, so I will, I'll acknowledge that point. I'll disagree with it, but I'll acknowledge it. The, as I said last week, you know... <laughs> you're sick with it, right, fine. So yeah, have been it for about two minutes and feels a bit sick. Let's save Buckbeak. Everyone want to put buy a t-shirt? Yeah, okay, fair point. Yeah. Um, I... Uh, as I said last week, I kind of I didn't like the fact that in Azkaban they they start to extend the action sequence, you know, the action sequences, and that's what they are basically, to beyond what they needed to be. So you know, the massive flight with Buckbeak, the ridiculous heights of the um, the Quidditch match, the cartoony, you know, Neil's favourite bit of the Whomping Willow. But and I think when I look back, it it that all grates on me because it makes me think of the Dragon Trial here. There is. Mm-hmm no need for it to go for me there is no need for it to go into this massive kind of 
aerial chase dogfighting around the castle where they get stuck on the roof and it's all a bit tense. And like, I just it, It's too over the top for me. I remember being excited by the book where it's all near misses and dodging and diving and, and trying to get around this fearsome beast without it, you know, soaring through the air, etc. We've heard from Babbity Rabbity, the cackling stump wants to get his oar in. Go. <laughs> How can you say that? It is awesome. It's not. It really isn't. <laughs> I'm sorry, but they do such a good job of communicating the threat and the menace of this hideous yeah. monster. And I, I'll put it this way. I love dragons. I, I go, I'm, I, I'm obsessed with dragons. So, And this was one of the best impressions the interpretations of a dragon I've seen on film, it feels alive, it feels menacing and malevolent and threatening. And I love that chase because it shows how intelligent the dragon is. You know, when he flies around the, the common room tower and he goes one way and the dragon goes the other, twigs on and goes the other way. I love that scene. I, I think it's fantastic. And the scene itself, especially it just in the pit at the start, is terrifying where Harry's forced to hide behind that rock and the dragon yeah, just breathes that. Don't give me I love the pit bit because that's how it's meant to be and that's how it was in the book. But the, the bit, and certainly it didn't seem so bad this time round, but like the first time round I remember watching it and thinking, well, this isn't what happened. And A, this is taking a bloody long time to get back to the pit and get the egg. <laughs> and all I can think is, all I can, and you know, maybe this is just me and my weird kind of convoluted thinking, all I can think is, I'd feel pretty ripped off if I'd gone to see a dragon trial and the bloody thing escapes and you don't see anything. You just see a kid disappear over a hill and come back. How do they know that he's defeated the dragon? How do they know that the I'm dragon's bringing... not just got bored and just gone hunting for wolves or something else to eat? What about the lake? What about the hedge? They don't see bugger yeah. all in those yeah. eyes. Yeah, no, trials and not spectators' courts. Yeah, no, absolutely rubbish. But what I would say, James, is I wonder if... Um, as it's told in the book, that dragon scene, the dragon sits on the egg and does not move, except for when Harry baits it to fly up. And apparently right. that takes some, like, 20 to 30 minutes. I'm not sure how you show oh, that in okay. a film and make it look interesting with him just weaving above the dragon I'm, until I'm it lifts up high enough. Fly, I'm all for a bit of flying and a bit of dudging and diving, etc., but it just within the pit, I didn't like the fact that it went all the way over Hogwarts because I, it just seemed... I love the fact it. that it symbolically lifts up and away from the book and says, look, if Joe wanted to write a big sequence where Harry gets chased by a dragon and just gone, oh, the dragon was gaining fast, but it, then Harry flew a bit faster, she could have done, but it wouldn't have been nearly as awesome to look at as mm. this. And as Eddie Izzard said, you don't get car chases in books. Yeah, no, yeah, he drove fast, he looked over his shoulder. Exactly, Neil, thank you. I really like the fact that they brought back Myrtle, and I think that they played the really uncomfortable bath time scene super Fantastic. I, I didn't even pick up on it in the book, but in the film it's just spot on. <laughs> uh, it's actually pretty close to the book. That's all right. it's, it's almost dead on. How do you the bit? Where it, how do you dehorny a ghost? Because that was terrifying. Yeah, I mean she's sixty-five years old and dead. Uh, well, the, the actress the, is actually forty odd years old when yeah, she was that, doing that. Yeah, weird. Yeah, that I just I look at her. I think of um, Bridget Jones's diary, like this kind of thirty-year-old spinster that she plays. Like, yeah, so it's mm. kind of creepy, but it's still brilliantly done. And it, it starts off with Cedric, and I had to cut this out of last week's show, sort of sidling up to Harry and going, you know, Harry, if you want to go to the upstairs prefix bathroom, it's uh, a place to go and relax. And I, I, and I, I swear, <laughs> said that in the film, I said, and a thousand slash fix were born. <laughs> Just a thousand. Ew. 
<laughs> being the, what, 60-odd-year-old ghost is probably a step up from being the pavement slab in Doctor Who. Yes. Oh, God, yes, yeah, she was as well. I love the fact that there's like a belly dancer sort of sound in the uh, the soundtrack. Patrick Doyle never gets any credit for the music for uh, the Harry Potter films. He had to follow John Williams, possibly the king of movie scores. There's no, possi- there's and no nobody possibly knows about it. There is no possibly it. about it. But yes, you're right. And I love it. And I'll tell you what, if we're going to briefly go on soundtracks, one piece I absolutely love, possibly my favourite piece in the entire saga, including Whoa. John Williams' music, is Patrick Doyle's opening. Opening music mm. where you you know the camera flies through the increasingly slow moving Warner Brothers logo. I swear those got slower as the films progressed <laughs> um, over the graveyard, and just the way it builds up and then goes into this kind of eerie, mysterious version of the uh, the Harry Potter theme. It's like it, it, that that music there told you something is going to go down. I love the uh, the um, uh, foreign visitors arrive music when the uh, the Durmstrangs oh, and yeah, the. Bob Adams turn up in that carriage, and that was just watching it. Yes, we, we watched it a couple of days ago with Lyra, and she. This is probably her favourite of all of them now. She was riveted to, to, to this one, uh, although she did request the one with the werewolf today. She said, "I want to see the one with the werewolf," and he scratched and he bited and he had a big face. <laughs> but yeah, the, the scene when the, the Bob Adams carriage came in, she went <gasps> and she gasped, which is exactly what you're supposed mm. to do. And then the, the Durmstrang ship comes up from the water and it goes... And it's like, yes! And she went, that's a pirate <laughs> ship! Which it is in yeah. our heads. And it just, the music is so beautifully accompanying that. And, and like I said, no one knows who Patrick Doyle is. And he's capable of such bombast and such grandeur and such <laughs> subtlety and such sadness in this film. None of the other um, music that John Williams came up with can really no. cu- uh, cu- stand up against the sad little music at the end when, when it's just sort of, you know, when Tamani says, everything's going to change now, isn't it? And it's just, yes. And that is like sort of it's playing you into the rest of Harry's that sad. That final music was it, where you see the ca- the carriage you know, fly away and the ship disappear, and it's kind of yeah. it's bittersweet. It's kind of beautiful because look, it's the sunset and it's the end, and everyone for the most part is okay. But this underlying so it's, it's almost cold. There's almost this kind of mm. coldness to the high notes that say you know everyone's okay, but this is the beginning of something like this is the last fleeting moment of happiness because it all gets worse from here even like the kind of the the fairy tale moment of um also like you know Hermione coming out and being completely glammed up and her transformation all that the music to that sounds like something from a disney film where the princess you know gets a dress made out of a pumpkin or something to that extent you know <laughs> it's just it, that actually yeah, it's, it's just it's just a great kind of um his music is absolutely amazing the score is fantastic
He only got to do uh, one film again, just like uh, uh, Mike Newell himself. But um, I think he, he manages to make his mark so that when you when you hear some of these uh, tracks again, you'll go, "Yeah, wow, that that really feels pervasive to Harry Potter." Even though I only ever heard that that mm. tune once. There is very much a feeling of um, when I became a man, I put aside childish things about this film, and I think the music is a, a mm. big contribution to that. The Yule Bull. This is huge for them. I mean, we haven't talked about this much so far. This is the film where they really st- the boys start to notice the girls, the girls start to notice the boys, and you, there's this really fantastic summation of what it's like to be a 14-year-old boy, and you look at a pack of girls. Well, they've always got travelling packs, and they're giggling at you, and you're like, what? What's the giggling about? What? Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean you like me or you don't like me? What? And, yeah, I... oh. Too close to home at times, this particular <laughs> yep. film. The, the, the scrapping between Harry and Ron feels real, and even though it's like a, a, a teenage boys, you know, could piss off at each other, I really felt for Ron in this one. He felt he could trust Harry, and suddenly the, all of this just sort of blows up, and Harry, it seems like Harry's not been telling him anything, yeah. and he won't listen to him, and they're being too pig-headed. And, you mean they're yeah, being teenagers? Fantastic. Yes, being teenagers. Um, okay, anyone on teenagers? Um, uh, yeah, I think the the argument between them is shown well, but I also think they do a good job of showing that after they've had that argument, um, both in the book and the film, I think they do a reasonably good job of showing that Ron regrets the situation and is trying to make it better. And the sort of ham-fisted, I told you that someone else that told me that... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Shameless to tell it, Pavetti to yeah, tell Yeah, it's, it's, it's not exactly subtle, but that indicates what is uh, is actually made a bit more obvious in other points. Um, when when Harry walks up to Ron, who is next to Seamus, you do get the sense that Ron is desperate to try and make things up with Harry, but his pride is too dented and he just won't do it. And Harry's anger at Ron for, it, for the injustice he feels uh, is is too much of an opposing force for Ron to overcome. I also do love Dan's delivery on that. How was that? How could anyone possibly see through that? It's completely mental. <laughs> but then on that note, I, I love the kind of the fact that the, the two of them are having this kind of touching moment where they're reconciling their friendship, and then you've just got Hermione sitting there listening in and just shakes her head. Boys. 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 <laughs> There's equally unfathomable genders uh, in in this film, and then there's the Yule Bull, which is always a huge thing if you're a kid, and it, it's just it's just a really nice sort of way of, of uh, putting something in the middle of the film where it's just levity, mm. and there's obviously there's, there's the anxiety from Ron, and there's the it's 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 really nerve wracking for all of them, but it's hilarious for everyone at, at home watching it, like oh, just it, remembering back to how freaking awkward it was when you were that age. That's so awesome though because it really does. Um, take away, you know, when when you remove the magic and the wands and the divination lessons and all the rest of it, they are kids and they're kids who are growing up, and it it mm. really reinforces this notion of them as they're just people and these things that happen to them happen to everybody. Oh, my, 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 my. 
In the run-up to the film, Warner Brothers approached a Canadian folk group called the Weird Sisters to obtain permission to use the name for its Harry Potter band. Uh, when a deal could not be made, the Canadian band filed a $40 million lawsuit against <laughs> Warner Brothers, as well as the members of the in-movie band. Uh, you may recognise uh, members from the band Radiohead and, of course, Jarvis Cocker of Pulp for the misuse of their group's name. The Canadian band also bought an injunction to stop the release of the film in its country. They were going to try to stop Goblet of Fire being released in Canada. What? An Ontario judge dismissed this motion, and to avoid further controversy, Warner Brothers rendered the band unnamed in the film. I think in the deleted scene, uh, Professor Flitwick says, Now a band who needs no introduction... However, the Winnipeg-based group continued to pursue the lawsuit. Lead singer Kim Barry, like stated in her claim that consumers will assume that the smaller and less famous Canadian band has tried to take advantage of the Harry Potter fame by copying the Harry Potter's band name when, in fact, the reverse is true. The injunction was dismissed and the band was ordered to pay costs. As of March 2010, the lawsuit has been settled. The details sealed. I'm assuming in that place they put the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> How dare they? Try to paint this as anything other than a no-name Canadian band trying to get forty million dollars they didn't earn from Warner Brothers. But in that respect, just settle for whatever they were offered the first I'm time. I'm just thinking, doesn't have Terry Pratchett have more of a case? Yeah, probably. Yeah, but Pratchett's got enough money and isn't behind frivolous. And lawsuits. he probably quite likes Harry Potter as well. I would think. He and Joe Wellinger probably had a pint every now and again. <laughs> I love the idea of Joe and Joe and uh, Terry are down the pub having a pint discussing their books. That's quite cool. So, uh, Professor McGonagall, then? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you can have a... I did, I, did I hear that um, Jarvis Cocker wanted to make a, an album based on that band from the Harry Potter film? The Weird Sisters. <laughs> If you listen to the lyrics, it's just oh, rubbish. It's like they are absolutely just, dire. I, I love the band because it's like Billy Idol meets Aerosmith. If you actually watch them, but you listen to the lyrics, but it's taking all the cheesiest yeah. stuff from Joe's writing and just putting it into one. There is no song reason this band songs. should be popular, even in the magical world, yeah. whatsoever. <laughs> But I love the fact that they're in it, and I'm definitely going to pepper this uh, podcast with various weird sisters' <laughs> hits. Come seek us where our voices sound. We cannot sing above the ground. And now along you'll have to look to recover what we So yeah, there's the, the the lake thing. Now I'm only going to talk about the lake bit for a little while um, because I want to know in the books when the Ron, Hermione, Fleur's sister, and Cho are underwater, is that them or is that a weird duplicate? No, it is them. No, it's them. Right, clenching both fists at this point. 
Why would Dumbledore allow that to happen? Because they are. I, safe. I don't think the it's hostages are in any danger. No, they're no. not. Which is Harry's mistake, isn't it? He thinks they're in danger when clearly they are not, and Dumbledore would never Don't put them in danger. Don't they actually say to him after afterwards in the book, like he said, oh, "I was in really book, worried yes. about you," and they say, "You idiot, Dumbledore wouldn't yeah. let us come to harm." Yeah, it was just a trial, you muppet. There's so many things that can go wrong, though. I mean, ultimately, there's what, an I awful mean, lot of things that could go wrong with putting him in an arena with a dragon, too. <laughs> yeah, but now that's the thing. Harry was volunteered for this incredibly yeah, dangerous volunteered. He didn't volunteer. They volunteered. No, the, no, Are you they guys saying that no yeah, they would did. have gone... Yeah, he calls them off to his office there. and basically tells them what's going to happen. Well, it's actually, um, it's the, like, the whole trial is that the thing that is most precious to you, and I love this, the thing that is most precious to you is taken away. And that is the thing. And so that's why they were called to the office, because they are the things that are most precious to um, you know, Ron, to Harry, and, and Hermione, to Crumb. So just they were kind of tricked into going to the office. They were drugged, I assume, and I you know, put in the I bottom really of the lake. So. Really, what a brilliant school. Yeah, I know. But what makes me laugh is the fact, yeah, like the whole thing is, is, yeah, and they never cover this in the film, but in the book, it's the thing that, that is, the, is the most precious to you. To Harry, it's Ron, because Ron and he have that massive fight and fallout, and he is his best friend, and he's, he's reclaimed his, you know, it's not been long that he and Ron are friends again, so he treasures his mm. friendship. The other, you know, the, the you know, Fleur, it's her sister, and that's fine. Fleur and her sister. The other two sense, are yeah. basically the girls that they dated once. There's a I bit of license here, though. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't think it's necessarily the thing which is most precious to them. It's just a thing which is precious to them. Yeah. The, the song takes a bit of poetic license with that, I think. They, all they've done is said, right, who's a person that's important to each of these people we can put down the bottom of a lake? And for Cedric and Victor, it makes sense for it to be the person they took to the ball. They must have some sort of... Uh, feelings towards those people if, even if it's just as friends so it's just someone that they're going to want to rescue that's put down when they come to in the book very much Ron and Hermione know exactly what is happening they've clearly had it explained to them what is going to happen uh, okay. uh, when they're put down because Ron literally turns around to them and says of course no harm is going to come to us you idiot and it's very obvious that they knew what they were signing up for I think it's not explicitly said but I think it's very implicit it really does not come across. If they had been kidnapped and drugged and put under the water, then they would be a lot more surprised when they're pulled up. As it is, they just kind of take it all in stride. One final thing. When it's obvious that there was tampering with the original draw, when it's obvious that Dumbledore and company are not in control, would they put children at risk like that again? Uh, well, what I would say is, for instance, the reason Neville knew that he wasn't a squib was he fell out of a third-story, second-story window and bounced. There's a very good chance that a wizard put underwater would not drown. <laughs> <laughs> There's still a very good chance Amani won't drown. Well, no, but what I'm saying is I don't know because it's not explicitly stated in the books, but... Oh, my... God, you guys are making such good excuses. <laughs> but I assume that in the books, they know that a, a witch or a wizard wouldn't drown just... Spontaneous bubblehead show. I, I assume okay. a Dumbledore I knows this, this is what I'm saying. They've got to, they have to have put some kind of charm on them, or and they have to be keeping tabs on them somehow is what I've got to think. Well, isn't Dumbledore's um, close friends with the Mer King? So yeah. probably has some sort of... Oh. I'm close friends with the Mer. I think it's the Mer Queen, <laughs> actually. Mer Queen. Okay, I thought it was, I was Mer King in the, the book. Lake. I thought. 
You can drown in seconds. We okay. Look, what would Aberforth say? He wouldn't. He'd, he'd be too busy cleaning the uh, pub of goat poop. Ah, my brother's putting fourteen-year-old girls deep underwater again. SSDD. Same fish. Dobby is cut at this point because he is the yeah. one who yeah, thinks Harry the um, gillyweed in the book, not in the film. Uh, it's Sharon said earlier today. It's amazing that they managed to get such emotion out of uh, the, the Dobby scene in the uh, in the seventh film. Because since you haven't seen them since film two, it's almost like remember this mm. guy. Uh, fortunately, he was in an earlier scene in, in film seven, but uh, he's been absent from what five films in between? Uh, four, yeah. Was he? He's, uh, he's come five, because of the presence. He, yeah, no, four films in he's, between. He's in the books, he's, he certainly appears regularly through four. He's definitely all the way through six. And is he in five? I can't remember. Um. <laughs> Because you like, I, th- I think, and again, it's kind of, it, it goes back to the whole Neville Cruciatus. It, it is all catering to those who have read the books, because the people who have read the books know and understand and are much more familiar with the character of Dobby than they are, than, than the film goers are. So it's much more emotional for us. Also, and I will reiterate this again, the sp- specifically the second and third trials are really not spectator sports, and surely they could have come up with something that was a bit more. I mean, at least for the second trial, that was a bit more, so that people could see what was going on. If the whole thing is to celebrate excellence, all you're really seeing is the well, aftermath. I'm sure they'd probably cast magical big magical screen. spell. Yeah. yeah. Ma- magical big screen. <laughs> that we just didn't see. Magical it's big screen. It's not talked about in the book either, and it stands out in the books as well. A wizard did it. And ran away. Um, okay. Right, so then there's the... Harry goes back in time and actually witnesses some of the Death Eater trials, or in fact one, because all of them are condensed into this one for time purposes. Um, but in the original book, does he see... Uh, was it Bellatrix and her husband, Rodolphus? Uh, yes, you, 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 you see all four of them, including uh, Bartigrotes Jr. tried at the same time. And uh, oh, was, isn't um, oh, Bagman in there as well? In His a trial, different you trial, see, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. So yeah, Bagman's on. But on, yeah, the on thing, well. the whole thing about so, uh, about Crouch Junior is that it's not um, uh, it's not Karkaroff who um, who rats, rats him out. out. It's his own father. So you yeah, lose you lose Jack, that completely. The, you you lose his father because he you at the trial he almost comes off as innocent because he's protesting the entire way. Like we were saying earlier, it's not a hmm. matter of him coming up and being all crazy in front of his dad. And that's hmm. how and that's something else is you never find out how he got out of Azkaban in the first place. And because his mother, in the book, yeah. Yeah, in the book, it's revealed that it's his mother. Yeah, explain, his yeah. mother was dying, so she switched places with him, died in prison, and took it. And they took it as he was already dead, but he's out now. Uh, hang on a second. D- did she take Polly's yeah. potion? And then, so she was like on like an, an hour away from dying. Uh, it was it was a couple of days or something like that. I think. Yeah, it it's, very it's, soon it's, it's, it's a very a very short Polly amount of time. potion lasts about. Well, hour, she could have so. taken a bottle in with her. Of, yeah, that's what. And took a lot more while she was dead. Well, the thing is, the Death Eater, uh, the Dementors are blind. All they knew was that there was one dying person in the cell when they visited, and there was one dying person in the cell when they left, is almost exactly the way it's said in the book, I think. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a narrative contrivance, but okay. I'll I'll buy it. That's fine. As you say, Leah, the, the dynamic between him and his father has completely changed. They outline him in the film as being clearly a nutball, 
and uh, wasn't in the book, isn't he being harboured by Bounty Party Crouch Senior and Bertha Jorkins visits and then has a memory charm put on her and then she goes and visits Voldemort, she's like a social worker or something, and uh, before they try to memory charm her, they notice that there's a memory charm already on her and then they find out about Body Crouch that way, is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah, pretty much. And they find out about the Tri Wizard Tournament that way as well. They also, uh, um, they also find... <laughs> Uh, Crouch Senior a lot earlier. That's part of um, Percy being completely removed from the whole thing, as Percy is his assistant at this point, and Percy kind of is thrust into taking over, because nobody knows that Crouch Senior is dead until much later. They say that he's sick, and that he's at home, and that he can't do any of this uh, any of this stuff. You don't find out that he's dead until the very end. Don't they actually, like, doesn't um, uh, Barty Crouch Junior kill Barty Crouch Senior, turn him into a bone via transfiguration and bury him wrapped up in his invisibility cloak. Because what happens is Barty Barty Crouch Sr. is being (laughs) held captive by Wormtail who lets him escape. That's why he hasn't been there. He's being imperialed or something. And he turns up in the Hogwarts grounds, uh, bumps into Harry and Crumb uh, at the edge of the forest and is raving. Harry runs off to get Dumbledore, leaving Crumb and Crouch alone. Uh, Crouch knocks out Crumb, which Karkarov is ma- uh, absolutely mad about, um, and disappears. It turns out that Barty Crouch Jr. received words that Barty Crouch Sr. was coming, got down there first, knocked out Crumb himself, and yeah, killed and transfigured his father into a bone. Yeah, that's it. To briefly on the fact, like, because he, he, you know, the whole point was that Barty Crouch Jr. had an invisibility cloak, which when I read the book was like, that's so cool because the whole thing, you know, the whole idea of, oh, Harry's got an invisibility cloak, the idea that someone else has as well kind of puts them on an equal, puts them on an equal peg. It's like, they're, you know, they're just as, just as dangerous as Harry, et cetera. But that kind of defeats the bit in the third, in the final book where they're going on about how the Harry's invisibility cloak is the one of the, is the the invisibility invisibility cloak. And yet, Crouch Jr. is meant to be exactly the same. No, 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 no. The difference is that invisibility cloaks are made from the pelt of some mystical creature, I think. It's in the um, the uh, the two charity books that were released, one, the, the magical creatures one, or beasts. And, and they grow more opaque over and, time. And they become visible, yeah, they lose their effectiveness, whereas yeah. Harry's oh, has right. never dwindled. It is perfect, if you like. Okay. Yeah. Point withdrawal. Yeah. No, no, thank no, you. It's yeah, worth seeing, yeah, because it's on. never mentioned in yeah. the in the films at all. It's also worth mentioning that Bertha Jorkins, the social worker, as I said, she's from the Ministry of Magic. She was sticking her nose in everywhere. Um, Voldemort kills her, uses that kill to create the Horcrux in Nagini. Really, I didn't tweak to that. Um, that's that's the replacement Horcrux because I don't know if he knows the diary's dead. Uh, in the films, Voldemort can feel the Horcruxes die and get destroyed. In the books, he doesn't mm. know. I don't know if he knows what happened to the diary. I'm fairly certain that he got wind he of it. He doesn't know until he meets back up with Lucius. Um, what happens is he planned to kill Harry and make a Horcrux then. He thinks he hasn't, so he needs to replace that to get his seventh, or to get his seventh gotcha. part of the soul, sixth Horcrux. So that's why he creates Nagini with Bertha Jorkin's death. Uh, but yeah, spot on. He's replacing one that he thinks needs replacing, but it's the one he intended to make with Harry's death. Right. And, and he's, he's obsessed with the number seven yeah. again. Um, as mo- it's pretty magical, so there you go. Right. 
two more things. One, I can understand why originally they said that they were going to make Goblet into two movies. Mm, absolutely. And now that Harry Potter is over, I kind of wish they had. Mm. Just for a little bit longer in the world. The problem is... And I, I, I would frankly have taken uh, three extra yeah. movies that would have been added on to Phoenix it, Goblet. Exactly. And, uh, if they did it with Goblet, it opened up the door. That meant Phoenix had to be... Half-Blood Prince yeah. probably had to be, although they could have probably slimmed that down to one. And then... Well, no one says they, they have no, no, to be, but it's certainly... It, would, if it worked the yeah, first it time. It would have been expected. Yeah. And if you do it with Goblet of Fire, then Phoenix has as much, if not more, packed into it. You kind of have to do that again. Producers don't care so much about fan expectations as, as box office returns. If they've shown that they get twice yeah. as many tickets for just one budget, then they will do that And so it's testament that they didn't, because the other problem you run into is how old would the kids have been by the end of it? Yeah. They would have actually yeah. been well, How exhausted would the kids think? It would have been a so, lot more filming. Yeah, they, because by this point they weren't doing what they did with the first two films, which was film them within a year of one another that was the plan it would be they would do the filming year on year and with Azkaban they broke well, that Hallows took 265 odd days to shoot that's that's a good two thirds of a year so it's, it's just it's the same year it's just more exhausting yeah. less time for the kids to be off less time for the kids to get which education. at that age bear in mind they're not allowed to do but by so, Hallows they I, were I, so that's why they could get away I, with that a bit more I can see why they didn't now a little part of me is like I wonder if they had, you know, dr- drive those kids, force them to go through it. You know, pain is temporary. We want ten Harry Potter films. I wish they'd made it a complete uh, animated series 11. and made the whole thing sort of scene by scene from the book. It'd have to be animated because you couldn't do it with child actors any other way, I don't think. But you can't do two and a half hour animated films. No, no, films TV series. I want it to be literally yeah, either, either 16, like that, 20 hours per book full seasons oh, and then you get everything from the books in there. But I recognise that in films, it doesn't make a good film to be so slavish, perhaps, to the books. True. And it's rare, it's very rare in animated series that you get acting of the calibre that you get in the late, the latter Harry Potter Oh, it would have been completely different. It happens. Yeah. It happens. Um, but it's, it's rare, and you should hold on to those animated series when you find them. So we get to the maze. They greatly reduce the amount of magical creatures mm. in the maze. They're blasting the fruits. No boggarts which turn... Well, dementors which turn out to be boggarts. Um, I don't really miss any of that stuff. Uh, Leo, anything which would have been actually quite no important? No Sphinx. Uh, that was kind of the That's really big one. But uh, I don't... I, I think it would have just slowed it down. Again, not a spectator sport. Ultimately, it is a dark corridor for, for Harry yeah. to go down. It would have very much changed the tone as well. With a sphinx and some enchantments that turn the world upside down, it never felt as intimidating and, and scary as it does in the film. And I think yeah. you need it to be a very simple, very uh, primal uh, type of maze that is alive yeah. and fighting Harry to bring out what happens in the film. I think in the book it's great, and it probably wouldn't have worked had it been written as it was in the film in the book. Um, but, yeah, so blast-ended scroots I think we probably didn't need. The Sphinx is, is quite nice and would have been great to see, but it would have changed the tone. It's tough to do that in a menacing way, I think, maybe. 
Yeah, I, I think it worked better. Story. I think the film worked better as it was because yeah. I mean they even say before going you know the maze changes you and it it makes you not feel, about what's in the yeah, maze. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, he's put on. So in the maze, does Cedric actually save Harry? Is it a flip of what happens in the film? Liam. Um, hang on. It's, it's not really. It's re- the they spider in the book, isn't it? Yeah. The acromantula. That's what they call big spider. <laughs> Okay. It's like Lumos Maxima. Arresto Momentum. Yeah, they kind Stop. of join... They kind of... Uh, Big light. They kind of join forces to take the spider down, and then they both go mm. running for the cup. So. But, but during the spider fight, Harry's leg is injured, um, and I'm not sure if he does save Cedric at any point. Because Cedric ends up picking Harry up, because Harry knows he can't make it before Cedric gets to the cup. Because um, his leg is injured, yes. um, so that's definitely saving him. That's definitely saying, "Look, we're both going to win yeah. this one." That's Cedric's decision, not Harry's. In the film, it is most definitely Harry picking Cedric up and saying, "Let's both go and get it together." It's so that Harry can have the guilt of that later on. Yeah, I think in the book, it's much more explicitly stated that they feel they have both helped one another through all three trials, and so therefore they yeah. sort of have to take it together. I mean, if there is that, because Cedric did like do his like taps his watch with his wand when they're underwater, and they did he did uh, mention about the um, how to unpuzzle the and egg. Harry told about so the there is so, that yeah. between, and they are ripping at each other's clothes just beforehand, so they have to kind of snap out of that. So it is kind of a mutual thing. But the significant thing there is that if Harry had just left Cedric tied up in a devil's snare and just gone and grabbed the portkey himself, Cedric would not have been a casualty in that scenario. And Harry, they, it would just have played out as it normally mm. would have. Cedric so, so didn't have to die at all. It, Harry would then feel for, for years afterwards that it's his fault that Cedric died. It's kind well, of it a position of what happens in, in the second trial where he is determined to see all of the hostages rescued. And at the end of it, he feels a bit silly. In this case, he is determined to see what he sees as justice done and Cedric gets his due as joint winner. Mm. And yeah, it ends up coming back on him but it's very much Voldemort's fault isn't it I mean Harry might blame himself but he couldn't have ever known right so then they get to the graveyard and then they meet Voldemort and then Ray Fiennes comes out (sighs) yeah Yeah. (laughs) okay when I when I first, as read, Voldemort's a lot less intimidating than Ray Fiennes made him. Uh, in, in the book, when you get to four, he is actually pretty dark and intimidating. But the, the, the constantly being told that his voice is high and shrill and his eyes are red, he seemed a lot more cartoonish. The way Fiennes plays him is so real and so twitchy and so psychotic and so liable to turn on you at any minute, even if you're his closest quote-unquote friend, that he makes for a really memorable on-screen villain. He is memorable, villain. but there is quite a bit of Bond villain about him. <laughs> Interestingly, he's in the next yeah, one. Yes, <laughs> the rumours and the theories are circulating in my head on that one, but less on that. And I, I love the kind of this, the kind of softness in his voice that's yes. more menacing than trying to sound like a villain. Like The, the, the bloke who played um, Voldemort in the first film on the back of Quirrell's head is trying yes. too hard to sound like a villain. Tell me, Harry, would you like to see your parents again? <laughs> 
Just give me the stone! It's like he's trying... There's only power and those too weak to yeah, seek there's just, there's, He's trying too hard, whereas Rafe is... Like, Rafe finds it's just... It's a, he's amazing. Absolutely. Uh, to, to link back to Star Wars briefly, many people complain about the changes made to the year and so forth. I would love for them to go back and, and alter the first film so that Rafe Fiennes was playing that part on the back of the head because he does that good a job at Voldemort that it's just... Mm-hmm. I'd love it. I think I'm right in saying he had quite a lot of influence over how that character was portrayed because I remember seeing, reading interviews with him where basically he said the reason he took the role is because his kids would never forgive him if he didn't. <laughs> he, he didn't seem that enthused by the role, but what he did do was he took it because they were quite insistent on having him or desperate to have him, he took it on the basis that he could sort of make it his own. So I don't know how much of the character, you know, the fact that he's barefoot all the time or the, the fact that he doesn't have red eyes. I, I seem to remember that the the human appearance of him, uh, so the eyes basically mainly, um, were were some of his stipulations in the way he was going to play the character. Um, and if, if so, that is, that is spot on, I think. I'm going to say, because if you say looks human, red eyes, high-pitched voice, am I the only person who thinks Judge Doom? Yeah, no, yeah. I was thinking of that too. Thank you. The decision to have, give, leave him with his blue eyes was mainly down to the fact that when they gave him the red contacts, you couldn't see the character through the contacts. It was very much hair and teeth, hair and teeth, or the baldness yeah. and teeth in this one case. They, they, they just sort of stripped away the bits that you'd slap onto a villain to make him look scary and just figured, oh, you know what? Ray Fiennes is will be scary. bloody scary as he is. And in fact, not only did they strip away bits, the fact that he doesn't have a nose and he just, he has an absence of a nose and those slits there, actually somewhere in the back of your mind you're thinking he is less than a man. He's less than a person. He's this wraith-like character who has been recreated and has not actually fully formed himself and has become this twisted demon type thing but it's almost like his face has been hollowed out they never really explain why he can get to harry now they never really explain why harry's blood is the one that matters i mean it makes sense if you think about it but it never really specifically goes into as it does in the book it could have been any wizard you know but he wanted harry because it would be more powerful it would give him the the same protection that his mother bestowed on him and that was in his blood in the first place. So it, mm. it, it never really goes into that, and I think you, you do lose a little bit uh, for that. I think you, well, you get it. Just, he does say, amazing what a few drops of your blood can do. And then he says later on, and this is that brilliant bit that ties up with Narnia, he says, it was old magic. And he sort of gives a sort of a dismissive wave of the hand in a kind of I've never read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe <laughs> kind of way, where it's like this can't possibly come back to bite me in the ass. This can't possibly be more powerful than anything I could feasibly come up with. Harry! Oh, I'd almost forgotten you were here. Standing on the bones of my father. I'd introduce you, but word has it you're almost as famous as me these days. The boy who lived. How lies have fed your legend, Harry. Shall I reveal what really happened that night 13 years ago? Shall I divulge how I truly lost my powers? It was love. You see, when dear sweet Lily Potter gave her life for her only son, she provided the ultimate protection. I could not touch him. It 
was old magic. Something I should have foreseen. But no matter, no matter. Things have changed. I can touch you. Not a few drops of your blood will do. Yeah. I'm going to kill you, Harry Potter. I'm going to destroy you. After tonight, no one will ever again question my powers. After tonight, if they speak of you, they'll speak only of how you begged for death. And I, being a merciful lord, obliged. And then they face off, and Voldemort specifically, it's a very uncomfortable scene, because it's, it's as uh, Fines said, it's an older man, a powerful older man, humiliating a young boy prior to killing him. It's something that just doesn't turn up in, uh, in kids' films, or kids' fiction all that much. I mean, unless it's going to be that the kids are wily trickster and gets away and goes, ha ha! But that is not what Harry Potter's about. The other thing that's very important is we know from the last book that his parents are watching over him. And it's possible that during this moment of prairie and cantatum, the ether, as it were, is made thin enough that they can communicate through their shades to him. Uh, Voldemort does say, no one else touch yeah, him, it's just yeah. me! Because he, he needs to prove this at this point. Voldemort when it comes down to it, is scared of Harry. He's very scared of Harry because he doesn't know how to kill him. Especially after he gets away this time. He's like, well, what do I have to do at this point? Thirteen years it's been. And yet, here you stand before me as though it were only yesterday. I confess myself disappointed. Not one of you tried to find me. Not even you. Lucius. Lord, I detected any sign or whisper of your will. There were signs, my slippery friend, and more than whispers. I assure you, my lord, I have never I return out of fear, not loyalty. Voldemort's rather strange relationship with the term loyalty. When the Death Eaters all turn up, he spits at them for not being loyal to him in the years he was away. Even Wormtail, he, uh, he despises him and says, you know, out of fear not out of loyalty. This is one of the most tragic aspects of Tom Riddle. He doesn't understand what loyalty is. He can only instill fear in people. He can't inspire loyalty. He doesn't get why Harry can. He doesn't get why Dumbledore can. And it's one of these things that he tr fights so hard to control, completely oblivious to the fact that the more he fights, the more he strikes out, the more terrifying he makes himself, the more powerful he seeks to be, the further away he gets from being able to inspire Well, loyalty. that is surely because loyalty is a facet of love. And 
the reason that Voldemort is so dangerous is because he's unloved. Tom never knew love, doesn't understand what it is, has never experienced it himself, certainly hasn't ever inspired it in another person. Joe refers to him as someone who has no concept of love. He's fighting a losing battle and he always will. Voldemort can never win, not on his terms. He wants to be all-powerful and he wants everyone around him to be loyal and he wants to live forever. These are ridiculous things to want. I think it it does come down to the fact that he wants to be loved. He is that little child who was left alone without anybody. The first thing that happened to him was that his mother, the, the person who's supposed to love you unconditionally, even if nobody else does, died and left him alone. And that's what he has spent the rest of his life and unlife trying to compensate for. He spent ages despising his mother, considering her to be a muggle, trying to find out about his father. Finds out his father was the muggle, despises him too, and has absolutely nowhere else to go. And so creates himself an alter ego. He is a maniac. He's a psychopath. Yeah, yeah. a sociopath, a psychopath, whatever yeah, you want I to call it. I can the difference. He is one, but Effectively, yeah. it's the same thing. It's like you said, like, the more powerful he becomes, the more people fear him, and he kind of pushes them away. The more that that happens, the more he resents them. The more who he resents people, the more, again, the more he pushes away. It is a continuing kind of cycle where he's just pushing the world further and further away from him. So as you say, he's never going to win. And this comes to a head at the end of Phoenix, which for the longest time was my favourite film in the series because of that finale. And we'll talk about that next week. But my God, I love that final moment in Phoenix. Don't you turn your back on me, Harry Potter. I want you to look at me when I kill you. I want to see the light leave your eyes. The last thing is, God bless Harry. When Voldemort shrieks at him, I want to see the light leave your eyes. There is no reason for Harry to do anything other than just cower behind that gravestone, go fetal and just wait for Voldemort to come around and Avada Kedavra him and just go, no, I'm not playing. No, 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 this isn't happening. I always took that scene to be that's the moment when Harry snaps sort of and goes, no, I'm not going to be in fear of this, this monster. I will stand up to him. I will fight for what I believe in. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, no, that's, he, he is a brave, brave boy at that exact moment. And it's mirrored so perfectly in the final film, him just sort of going, OK, I am coming out, I will probably die at this point, but I am not running. It's the first signal that when the seventh book comes around, he will be able to face that uh, without shirking away from it, without, you know, when he's walking away from the castle in the seventh uh, book film, um, it talks in the book so much about how he wants to shout out to the people around him and, and get them to stop him from doing what he's going to do, but he doesn't. And this is the first sign that he is going to do that. He is able to do that and and able to face up to whatever life will throw at him. And, uh, yeah, really well done in the film, I thought. He's not entirely steel at that point, though. There's a brilliant moment where um, he's got his back against the tombstone and this expression of why why the hell are you doing this why are you directing all of this hatred at me almost childlike confusion and i don't understand why this is happening to me and then that instant when it changes is when he gets up and walks out and i just 
that was an amazing piece of acting from Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah. It's a boy growing up in seconds yeah, before he arrives. It's, it's having his innocence ripped away from him, and he's trying to find. There's a real hardening of his of his uh, of his gaze, hardening of his appearance and his features and his face, just before he then stands up, turns the corner, and and walks out. Yeah, really well done. A lot of people have actually leveled allegations that, uh, that the Harry Potter character, that so much of what how he succeeds uh, is by luck or other people's help, uh, which is true. Uh, the other people's help is key because without all of his friends, without all of his, his extended family that he brings to him, he would be just a boy on his own the whole time. But when the chips are down and he is in a situation where most people would just become crumbling, shivering wrecks, he faces that. That's not luck. That's that's simply down to being able to do the most terrifying thing. And also to inspire the loyalty you were talking about, the fact that he can have around him the sort of people who would step in front of him and save him and sacrifice themselves for him um, is exactly what you were saying, Alex. It's the loyalty that Voldemort will never, ever have and, and know. Radcliffe goes a little bit over the top uh, when he's sobbing over Cedric's body, but ultimately he's a 14-year-old kid and it's understandable. But then when the music kicks in and when Cedric's father comes in, it's absolutely mm. heart-wrenching. And again, another it's testament to Patrick Doyle and how well he did with this. Yeah, yeah. it stings, that music. And, and the, f- again, Fleur's reaction, that utter horror and that scream is so genuine. Uh, that you like, this is suddenly totally wrong. There should not be a death of a student at Hogwarts. And there should not be an audience to it either. Yeah, I, I no, have to say, I don't think he over-dramatizes that bit at all. If you, if you also bear in mind what he's just been through in terms of the battle, there is going to be a massive amount of adrenaline flooding out of him in that moment. And the shaking and collapsing and, and effectively going to pieces. Somebody who's just been through that. I, I actually think that that's probably pretty close. And I love what they did with Cedric's dad as well because I didn't like that character in the book. Uh, he, he is very jealous of Harry and uh, mocks Harry at points for the the attention that he's getting over Cedric um, and is not a terribly nice character. He's a very pushy father type character. Um, and then in the films they strip that away and just make him a father who has just lost his son, um, which is exactly what he needed to be, a loving father that we see at the beginning who then loses his son. Your final dance This is Your final chance To hold The one you love Waited long enough. 
as much as Azkaban introduced an element of darkness, this for me is the one where I really started to know, notice how dark they were going. And it was a lot darker than I thought the book was, maybe because the book had that bright orange cover and that's what I was taken in by. But I liked the fact that there were enough kind of humorous, warm, comical moments to offset all the darkness that are just as memorable as the, you know, the dramatic stuff that happens in the film. So things like the twins. The twins are amazing in this one. You know, taking the mick out of Ron when he's learning to dance with Pro- Professor McGonagall. Oh, that's that just priceless. brilliant. Um, Moody, when he's, um, he turns Malfoy into a ferret. Uh, just mm. <laughs> and for good measure sticks him down exactly. crap's trousers. Just, again Brendan Gleeson fantastically cast brilliant as Mad-Eye Moody and just the brilliant like is, is that a student technically it's a ferret it's just it's absolutely <laughs> yeah, it's, genius you, you, it makes you want to like yeah. Moody so when he, he, he betrays it's that much yeah, more that is scene. just a wonderful scene I, I love that scene what are you doing Teaching. Teaching. <laughs> the difference between transfiguration into an animal and being an animagus is very significant. Uh, this is why it takes ages to learn to be an animagus. If you just turn yourself into a ferret, you wouldn't be able to turn yourself back again because you'd be a yes. ferret. You would have no memory of being a wizard, any knowledge of magic. You'd, you'd still have you'd your memories. You'd be stuck as a ferret. You'd still have your memories. You just you wouldn't back. have vocal cords to enunciate the spell. Or a, no, 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 you wouldn't. You'd, you'd no, you absolutely wouldn't because you, literally your brain has turned into a ferret's brain and a ferret's brain doesn't have the capacity to hold your memories. So That does make sense. This has been stated in the yeah. official journal. Apologies, I withdraw so that point. So that's what... I can only imagine that becoming an animagist, you've got to first turn your legs into dog's legs and then just do it by degrees. <laughs> Like getting into a swimming pool. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's why Malfoy, thankfully, probably would have no memory of being down crabs' pants. There's, uh, there's one more sort of uh, humorous, very well done scene, I think, which is Alan Rickman's sort of major contribution after yes. the, the drawing of the the name, uh, and it's just such a fantastic little scene. But I love really, the film. I love it. Yeah, it's entirely visual, so I can't no, put I it on. It's, it's just. It's the moment. It's, it's the the rolling of the eyes, and you know, occasionally you know, just hitting them with a book and so forth. Now, you know, I occasionally marked around at school. I got sent to on call, and there were teachers that were just like, "Oh, why am I here? Why have I got to put up with this lot?" <laughs> it's just it's the really comical moment where he prepares for it. It's like the actual action of hitting them in the it's head the- with you know with the book or pushing the head down isn't funny. It's the point where he rolls his eyes and just and pulls his sleeves down, yes, so. and like I'm going to enjoy this. <laughs> I, I really wanted the moment when he sort of grabs their heads and forces them down. I actually wanted him to knock their heads together. Then yeah, forcing their heads down doesn't mean much. But he should have just knock their heads together. Newell's only direction to him in that scene was more hits, more hits. <laughs> I, I've seen this from both sides because I've seen the uh, the side the pupils getting into trouble and the teacher sort of trying to work out what to do with them. But I'm actually training to be a teacher at the moment and. It gets right. it so spot on. You just want to clip <laughs> them around the ear, and you know you can't, but Snake yeah. does, obviously. <laughs> so you just want to just scream, shut yeah. up, stop talking and study. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Okay, Barty Crouch Jr. never explains about the situation with his father, and I don't blame him, frankly. It's confusing me right now. This is a huge thing. Fudge never has Barty Jr. receive the Dementor's kiss. In the film, he gets dragged off to Azkaban. In the book, his soul is removed and eaten. Mm. And the evidence of no what one he else did along with it. Because to Fudge, he represents absolute disharmony. And if Voldemort is back, he doesn't want everyone panicking about it. If he's not, he certainly doesn't want people panicking about it. Yeah, I always read it. that as Fudge uses it to cover up. So no one can sort of prove that Voldemort's returned. He sort of 
starts the sort of cover up that he is sort of going on in the next book almost. But I think it's slightly different. Do you think- I, I don't think he wants to cover it up. I think he wants to com- he wants to pretend pretend that it couldn't be possible. And if there's any possibility that it could be true, he just wants to get rid of it. Not because it's covering up. He doesn't want to admit it. He's literally in denial that, as Alex says, it's the disharmony he doesn't want. And if Voldemort's back, mm. that's disharmony. So he wants to do everything he can to ignore that. He doesn't even want to see This it. leads on brilliantly to Umbridge, because he just he would have gone straight off and gone, right, who is my best man for the job? Aha! Dolores Umbridge, fancy being a teacher it for a year? echoes. When you see him having an argument with... Um, uh, Dumbledore in his office, like the the, the line is, "Eeyore, I will not be seen as a coward." Like if if Voldemort had returned, he has no idea how to deal with that, so he would be seen as a coward. So if he ignores that that has happened, he just stays normal and still appears as a strong leader. He's just he's so determined not to lose face. The one thing evil needs to proliferate is for good men to do mm. nothing. And while Fudge may not be a good man, he's a man who was in a position of power and in the position to do something about it, and he doesn't. And blood is on his hands by the end of this series. Lots of it. Very little Sirius in this. If you remember, uh, Gary Oldman was already kicking off about the fact that Sirius died in Mm. book five. And they they shot his scenes. They even shot his scenes in Hogsmeade, but they just pulled it down to one little fireplace scene. And for a while, I was... Is that actually Gary Oldman? It it was, but... uh, I wasn't happy with either way that they did the, the fireplace conversations, either in this or in the, the next one. It didn't yeah. really look how I imagined it in the book, because in no. this one it's the coals the- form his face, which looks weird. And in the next one it's mm. this shimmery fire effect, and I'm, I'm not sure either of them works. Like Because in the book it's literally his head floating in, in flames, it, it, but f- fully formed his head with flames around it is the way it seems to be yeah, in the book. I, I, so. I'm with James on that. It never looked really satisfying. Which is a shame, considering they got a really fantastic actor to play Sirius. He's, he's kind of wasted in this film. He could have been a vital anchor to Harry. And in the book, he, he really uh, he has a much larger part in the book, it, both as his self and as his dog self. And also as Harry's pen friend, because for a while he's the only person Harry feels like he can talk to about what's going on. Yeah, because that is a, a change from the book uh, to the movie, is that Harry off his own back decides to write to Sirius because Sirius is finally the person he's always needed to confide in. So to that parent figure, whereas in the film, it's Hermione says write to Sirius. It's also in the film just a way of Harry getting what's in his head out on the screen so we all know what's in his head. There's actually at the the very end, uh, and I think this is actually kind of important, there's a confrontation between, and it doesn't last very long, but there's a confrontation between Snape and Sirius that does not happen in the film. And I think that's actually kind of important, and I think that's something that really does change the tone a little bit because you don't have that. The last time they've seen each other is... You know, before in in Azkaban or in and, the movie, Azkaban, allows, not, not in the prison, Azkaban. It, yeah, it, it allows Dumbledore to to show what he is going to do as well, because he forces them to shake hands in the uh, in mm-hmm. the hospital, mm-hmm. and that doesn't happen. And so you don't see Dumbledore's intent to reform the Order of the Phoenix, which you do get a hint of in the book. I've always been very angry that they took that out at the uh, the end of the film. Um, I suppose he's dissipated over time because Phoenix was so was so good, but 
it's Dumbledore rolling up his sleeves and going, right, Voldemort's back, we now must prepare. And you don't get Sounds that. Sounds pathetic differences aside is basically what he's saying. Yeah. But I think the thing that I would say is you've talked in previous shows about the the severely cut down uh, Dursley sequences at the beginning. It's the sequences yeah. with Dumbledore at the end that I miss the most. They are severely cut back. And I love seeing Dumbledore... Because every single book, I think, up to this point has had a scene at the end where Dumbledore sits down with Harry and unravels a little bit of what Harry's feeling. In the fifth, in the fifth book, particularly, that's a big one, obviously. It's like the pride. It's yeah, it's it's that moment at You've the end. You've gotten through this giant yeah. book, uh, and yeah. here's your prize. And they do it in the first one, almost as per the book. Dumbledore comes to um, to Harry's bedside and explains the whole thing, and they they do it there, but from Chamber prisoner in this one, they really reduced that too much that, for me. That was I a like shame. That. Today, we acknowledge a really terrible loss. Frederick Diggory was, as you all know, exceptionally hardworking, infinitely fair minded, and most importantly, a fierce, fierce friend. I think, therefore, you have the right to know exactly how he died. You see, Cedric Diggory was murdered by Lord Voldemort. The Ministry of Magic does not wish me to tell you this. But not to do so, I think, would be an insult to his memory. Now, the pain we all feel but this dreadful loss reminds me and reminds us that while we may come from different places and speak in different tongues, our hearts beat as one. In light of recent events, the bonds of friendship we made this year will be more important than ever. Remember that. And Cedric Diggory will not have died in vain. You remember that. And we'll celebrate a boy who was kind and honest and brave and true right to the very end almost no you know what I'm going to go ahead and say equally wonderful delivery of us just a single line from Emma Watson everything's going to change now isn't it perfect bookend to that part of this series because from now on yes everything is going to change yeah. this is, the, this is the, the, the key milestone this is the kind of halfway point the breaking point this is like you, the introduction has been made you've been brought into this world we've drawn you in now the story begins it's almost more appropriate that there are four films on either side rather than four and mm. three well interestingly for the books um, a lot of people consider the fourth film t- the fourth book to be a pivot point and the books uh, mirror one another thematically either side of that it's been a while since I read anyone uh, sort of detailing that theory but yeah very much they, they looked at the books either side and said okay so you take what happens in Prisoner Ooh, of Azkaban serious and then Horcruxes and yeah, then so yeah there's a certain sort of mirror either side of that fourth that fourth book and the fourth book is literally where everything changes pivotal point and you start going Nice. backwards through the books to get to the seventh which is where Harry comes to face Voldemort for the last time as opposed to arguably the first time in the first book where you see the aftermath of the first time where they faced 
Say what you want about Joe's asking her audience for willing suspension of disbelief, but she can sure write a serial. <sighs> okay, that's it for Goblet. <laughs> Anything else we got to say we can do next week or no, the week no. after? Right, um, okay, so before we go, ladies, gentlemen, pimp your shows. Uh, let's start with Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, James. So, uh, my show is, I guess, Canine Rinse. I am this week on uh, an episode talking about Alice Madness Returns, which is interesting discussion. And last week I was getting into trouble for not liking Red Dead Redemption as much as I should. How <laughs> dare you not like an awesome game! So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's where you can find me. Uh, there, uh, writing and podcasting. And thank you for having me. You're crazy. Um, you're quite welcome. Thank you very much for coming on. Um, other James... Rabbity, rabbity you can herself. find me and the cackling stump over at GameBurst, www.gameburst.co.uk. It's a twice-weekly gaming podcast. We do news, we do roundtables, we do replay shows, we do quiz shows, we do the lot. And I keep forgetting to mention, I also do content for Gonzo Planet, so you can find me there as well. Ah, yes, the Nintendo Difference. An excellent series of audio articles. Uh, Neil, just go for KDS at this point. We've, we've had enough GameBurst. You never I... have enough GameBurst. No, you can't. <laughs> You've proved it, sir. You can find me over at the Kid Dog Show 2.0. That's at kds20.blogspot.com. And I also do uh, work for Gonzo Planet. I am Gonzo Planet's connoisseur of garbage movies. Terrible. Terrible movies. Ah, oh, looking forward to some more, actually, from what the ones we've been talking about recently. It might not just be video games. We yes, should... But don't forget Street Fighter um, is next. I've got the kick. Bisons are so hard. The next bison wannabe is going to feel it. <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. <laughs> Um, I am at GamerDork.net and also on Gonzo Planet. And Sharon. I am on Gonzo Planet for writing and Twitter for general stuff. I think we need to get James to write something for Gonzo Planet now. Sorry, James Carter. I've asked, haven't I? Yes, asked? yeah, it's in the works and it'll be in your uh, inbox probably tomorrow. So uh, I'm actually oh, starting fantastic. off writing about uh, a bad movie, Skyline, sadly. Oh. Skyline. Yeah. What? Who else direct? The, the those are the guys who did any of a special requiem. Good. Go for it. Rip it a new. And probably something on Harry okay. Potter because uh, yeah, talking about it for two and a half hours hasn't pleased my be awesome. uh, my appetite. <laughs> that would be awesome. Uh, yeah, like I said, I've got some uh, Potter Gonzo fiction. I think in the works. It's going to be slightly different for regular Gonzo fiction, and going to kind of go much more into regular fan slash, fiction. You're going to know from the. It's not slash fic, but it's going to be um, about events that were actually supposed to have happened. So we shall... Yeah, we'll see. But you'll know it's Harry Potter, so there won't be that kind of... Ooh, the, the twist is at the end that you realise it's Harry Potter. That won't be the point. And I'm going to stop saying I solemnly swear I'm up to no good, because someone rightly pointed out that's opening the Mordor's map. I should be closing it. Although it was referencing the third movie. So how should I end this movie? Maybe just everything's going to change now, isn't it? <laughs> Yes. Yes. So you've been listening to the Digital Gonzo Harry Potter Reviews. I've been Alex Shaw, and everything's going to change now, isn't it?
dark and difficult times lie ahead. Soon we must all face the choice between what is right and what is easy. But remember this. You have friends here. You're not alone. 